Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you have not registered yet for the Theology in the Raw conference here in Boise in late March, early April, then please do so ASAP, pressandsprinkle.com. All the info is on my website or in the show notes. You will want to register sooner than later because space is filling up. My guest today on the podcast is Tom Velasco. Tom teaches at a local Christian high school, uh, like a classical Christian education high school place. So kids are super smart and they read uh, they read books like The Brothers Karamazov in their senior year, which is insane because the book is 776 pages of pretty dense 19th century Russian literature stuff. It's really a heavy book, but um, th- this is kind of a different kind of podcast. Like I just read the book, just finished it a couple weeks ago, and I I don't know. I just I, I'm I'm kind of mesmerized by the book. Um, wasn't the easiest to read. There were parts that were hard to get through. There are other parts that were like, man, I can't. I was like can't stop reading this. This is so engaging. And the book is so incredibly thoughtful. And there's so many layered layers and layers and layers to it. I mean, it's hailed as one of the great novels of all time. So um, I do want to give a spoiler alert. We do talk about all kinds of stuff in the book that um, we are going to spoil. So if you have not read the book, then and you don't want it to be spoiled, then you might want to change the channel. But I mean, you've had over 150 years to read it. So if you haven't done so yet, not sure you will. Um, but anyway, yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's kind of a different one, but we interact with all kinds of different themes uh, in the book and related to the book. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Tom Blasco. My friend Tom Velasco talking about Brothers Karamazov. I, I've never done this before, like a book review. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think a lot. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe a small percentage of people will enjoy this. So we're going to be talking about um, uh, Dostoevsky's book, Br- The Brothers Karamazov. And so this is, I mean, spoiler alert. We're just going to go for it, right? We're not yeah. going to like... Um, so if you don't want any spoilers, then go listen to a different podcast. So... Um, I, I don't mind the spoilers, especially the book this big, because I don't mind kind of knowing kind of what they'd be looking for personally. But some yeah. people want the element of surprise or whatever. Well, but. and also so much of the, the book is full of spoilers itself. As That's you true. and I have talked oh, earlier, yeah. the opening line of the book tells you <laughs> that Fedor Karamazov dies. That's the opening line of the book. So that, you know, you know the whole way leading up. And then... I mean, I suspect there's a there. No, even even the climax or the like the result of the court case, which is kind of the central plot event. They tell you ahead of time what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's not like anything is really. Yeah. He doesn't care about the narrative. <laughs> the narrative isn't the point. The, really? Yeah. The point is the characters and the philosophy. That's what he's like. I. I that's what huh. I'm convinced he is concerned about is. He is he is creating characters that are real. And 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 for me, and maybe this can be kind of like a good point to kind of introduce myself a little yeah. bit. For me, that's actually what I love about this book. I read this book every year in January, so I'm reading it right now, mm-hmm. um, because I teach it to a bunch of 12th graders. So I, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. I teach 12th grade literature and history, both, um, at a classical Christian school. And I've mostly done this for the last 22 years of my life. I took a six-year wow. hiatus to uh, work at a church as an assistant pastor. And when I was there, I mostly was involved in teaching ministry. I would preach when the lead pastor was gone, and I started up a little 
I don't know if it's proper to call it like a Bible school. It was a little. Oh yeah. It was a very little Bible school. <laughs> did you help start the one at Calvary? The... <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. I did start the you one did? at Calvary. Okay. Oh. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. At Calvary Chapel, Boise, which is where I attend, we've actually had lots of stops and starts of little Bible schools yeah. that we've had there. Okay. And um, so before I came, a friend of mine, uh, Ethan Larson, who he's a missionary. Well, no, he's involved with very mission, a missions organization now, but and lives in Minnesota, I think. Okay. He actually had started like two or three different Bible schools at Calvary. So none of them ever really, like, the one I started, it ended. <laughs> So oh, it's really? Like, yeah, okay. so it's like, these. There, there are lots of stops and starts with it. But <laughs> So that's mostly what I did. I was also a youth pastor. But um, uh, I do think, you know, one point that might be of interest, Preston, is just how you and I met. Because uh, you and I met through our mutual friend, Sherrod. Uh, Sherrod Yadav, yeah. Which um, uh, would be great to have him on. I know, podcast, right? I oh, man. Uh, or his brother, Samir, too, who's a <laughs> who's a who's quite an accomplished theologian. But... Um, uh, I, you know, I think probably that can kind of transition into how I first ever even heard of this book because in college I was I was bosom buds with Sherrod and Samir, mm-hmm. the twin brothers. Who uh, uh, did both of them go to school with? Yeah, you yeah, 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 masters? yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, we, you know, Sherrod studied history with me. And Samir studied philosophy with me. I was a double major. So I did oh, both. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I did both with those guys. And it was through Samir that I basically met everybody in the philosophy department, including the professors. And it was his senior year, I think, which was kind of when I was just getting started in the philosophy department. I think I was taking a lower division classes at the time mm. that uh, Dr. Harbison, who... Uh, <laughs> No way Dr. Harbison listens to this podcast, but shout out to Dr. <laughs> Harbison, who's one of my favorite teachers I've ever had. But he's a uh, he he's an atheist and he's an analytic philosopher, which to not go too much into detail on that means that he wouldn't teach the kind of philosophy that would be taught in this book, really. That's okay. I mean, in in short, like uh, analytic philosophy is gonna concern itself with math, logic, science. And this is like a literary work, which right, analytic right. philosophers just don't do. They don't do <laughs> literary works. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but he just apparently for years had wanted to teach a class on Brothers K and always refrained from doing so because he couldn't find a translation that he liked. And when the Pavir Volkonsky translation came out, which That's they're a married, one, okay. it's the one that we read. Oh, they are. Yeah. Oh, okay. They're a married couple. Yeah. Uh, Volkonsky is Russian, Pavir is French. Uh, and what I, I believe the translation principle that they kind of go through is, if I'm not mistaken, I probably have this a little backwards. It's been a while since I read on this. Volkonsky will like translate it directly into English. Then Pavir will read it and he's going to think about like the, like the way to nuance it, to make it literary mm. in a sense. So it's like, and then it goes back to make sure that the meaning was preserved. So it's like a back and forth kind of. Kind of thing between the two. Why in the translation? I don't obviously. I don't know Russian, so I know nothing. You know, yeah, but it I don't just either. seems so English, so fluid, and so yeah. English. So I'm like, really, is there a Russian equivalent to this saying that seems very like unique yeah. to the English language? I don't know Russian either, but I've always taken it. Yeah, when you have, especially when you have some of those very, I mean, they're idiomatic translations. I wish I could think of a a specific example in the book. I just remember things where I'm like. Oh, that it's not quite an American idiom, but it sounds mm-hmm. like. Uh, but I know what it means. <laughs> like it, it's, and <laughs> yeah, it's just, totally, yeah. it almost is like you're they're doing a new whoops a new metaphor that 
I'd never thought of before. Yeah, something yeah. Like that. So yeah, they're very skilled. So you've read the book how many times now? Uh, it's it's hard to calculate exactly. I've taught it for ten years, and during those ten years, I I mean, I basically kind of each year do almost two readings because I read it to prepare for the class, and I read wow. large sections or large chunks. I just combine sections and chunks, <laughs> chunks in class uh, with the students. So in that okay. sense, it's like sometimes it's almost like two per year, but at the same time, I like when I know which parts I'm not super interested in, so I kind of skim right. those. Okay. And so sometimes there might be a detail in there or whatever that I've skimmed over a lot and yeah. don't quite remember, but more or less 10 times and, and maybe the, a little bit more. So but at least 10 times. This is yeah. a, according to my translation here, a 776-page Let's see, a 776, um, and pretty small print. I mean, this yeah. is not... Oh, it's I, I actually Googled how many words are in the book. It's 360,000 words. Oh, wow. So the average PhD dissertation is going to be eighty to 100,000 words. So yeah. This is like reading... And, and the density of the book is... <laughs> yeah. You know, this is not a... I mean, it, it's not... There were parts where it were as hard as I thought. Yeah. Other parts that were really hard. Because I've, I've heard it... I've heard people say, this book changed my life. I heard... One friend of mine said it saved his daughter's faith in high school. Oh, wow. In high school? In high really? school. It's re- he wow. said it's required reading for all my kids now. I'm like, okay, I'm 46. I've got a PhD. I'm not – I'm an idiot, but me and a lowercase <laughs> i idiot. And I had to – you know, I'm like slugging my way through it. And like there's times I have to go back and reread, reread. And I still – I'm like, I think he's saying this, whatever. So it's not the easiest read, but it's not – I've read more difficult. I mean, I've read – you sure. know, Corbett McCarthy's – Blood Meridian, probably the most difficult book I've ever read. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't read it. I've read two McCarthy books, The Road and No Country for Old Men. Oh, okay. I haven't checked out Blood The Road was fair. I mean, I think I've heard more his easiest one. It was pretty, pretty it wasn't easy. Too, but he's still no. very creative and he doesn't, put, he doesn't believe in punctuation or something. No, it's very <laughs> weird. Or at least he plays with punctuation and definitely capitalization. He yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. no capitalization. Yeah. yeah. So Blood Meridian, I mean, there's, I mean, he has like whole pages in Spanish untranslated. It's like. Hey, deal with it. Go learn Spanish, you know? (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, real quick. So give us just a, I mean, maybe a 30-second, who is Dostoevsky? And then uh, go ahead and give us an overview of the book, and then we can dive into some of the more meaty themes of the book. Yeah, so Dostoevsky is a super interesting individual. He, um, He was, you know, raised Russia, 19th century, Mid 19th century. Okay. So mid 1800s is kind of, you know, which keep in mind historically what's going on is you're talking about post Napoleon, right? Post Napoleonic yeah. invasion. Russia was extremely nationalist, as kind of everybody was, okay. um, especially, and it was rooted in their, um, their uh, just, I don't know, the, the way they viewed themselves as having beat Napoleon, because they're the ones who beat him. Right, he was seen. By, I didn't, so I didn't know. I don't very little about all this. History, oh well, he's but. an unst- he was an unstoppable force. Nobody could touch him. Huh. And he was then, like the Hitler of that era. And yeah, they, totally. And he was he was just a rolling juggernaut through Europe. And huh. he actually didn't want to invade Russia. His original goal was to basically divide the Eurasian continent between himself and the Russian Tsar, and then to marry basically to have intermarriage between their families so that you would hmm. have a, f- a single family essentially ruling over the entire Eurasian continent. Oh my gosh, huh? For various weird political reasons, the Russians are initially, Alexander, uh, initially kind of is on his side and then changes his mind. Hmm. When that happens, Napoleon believes he has to invade Russia. Oh, so wow. this is, of course, what leads to that 
that great line in The Princess Bride, right? You've committed one of the classic blunders. You know, one the first is never get involved in a land war in Asia, right? So, oh, I did, okay, wow. Have you ever heard that? I, mean, I, I now, now that you said that, yeah. I recognize and, that. Well, line. that's all rooted in the fact that three times nations have tried to invade Russia. Huh. The first being uh, Sweden in Sweden. Yeah, Sweden in the s- late 1600s, early, early 1700s. I can't remember the exact. It was under Charles the Tenth. They were they fought a war against Russia, beat the Russians badly. Sweden was actually like one of the was the great Baltic power at the time. Huh. To try to kind of really put down the Russians because the Russians were growing, uh, okay. he decided to invade and. The response of the Russians was to engage in basically a, a you know a slash and burn kind of approach where they 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 essentially sure. burned their towns down and with withdrew or retreated in inward right yeah uh, into the interior and of course the Russians used to the winter used to the misery and also having supplies people always talk about their toughness <laughs> but inside they have fully functioning towns right. Charles is coming in and his men require those those towns that they're conquering to provide them with food and and mm. shelter and all those things but they're not there because the russians have burnt the buildings down and burnt oh, up wow. the crops and and then when the winter sets in charles and his men are screwed <laughs> and they end up losing tons of men and retreat well that's what napoleon does right okay. so napoleon does the exact same thing napoleon invades wins every battle but when the russian winter hits and the russians in the meantime are burning their towns and withdrawing <laughs> oh, inside man. um Napoleon is forced to withdraw. He invades Russia with 450,000 men. He makes it back to France with 30,000. Oh, my God. All dying to the Russian winter and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And um, now, of course, Napoleon would live to fight another day. But after that, he was so weakened. Hmm. He just couldn't compete against the combined power. So Russia always looked at themselves as like, we're yeah. the ones, right? We're the ones who did this. So that forms, I mean, because there, there is a lot of nationalism in the book. I, I was yeah. almost like, this sounds like oh, yeah. twenty. 2022 America. Yeah, it's actually a great, it's a really interesting moment when Dimitri, I know I might be getting ahead here, but he's talking to the Polish officers. Oh, yeah. And they're the Polish officers. He's trying to be nice. So he says, a a toast to Poland. And they're like, we can drink to that. So they get up and and they toast. And then he goes, and a toast to Mother Russia. And they're like, no. They're like, no, we're not going (laughs) to toast to Mother Russia. And of course, that's because Russia had partitioned Poland, had actually taken part of Poland. Uh, uh, you okay. know, uh, you know, and so Poles hated the Russians at that particular time. And then they say, we'll agree to toasting Russia before a certain date. I forget the date to her borders then, not now where they've uh, taken part of Poland. Okay. And Dimitri oh. says that line, which I, I love. He goes, can't a man love his own country? Like, it's actually a really right. And I and, remember this scene like yeah. I, yeah, as you're talking, I wouldn't have been able to recall it. But as you're talking, like, I totally remember that back and forth. A lot, yeah. lot of. I was like, I know nothing about this history, but I yeah. imagine there's stuff going on here that yeah. Dostoevsky Well, and again, with. also at the a- end of the book, when Dimitri's planning to flee the country with Grushenka, mm-hmm. he's going to America. Right. He goes, I don't uh, want to go to America, Alyosha. I hate America. He says, <laughs> he says, he says, uh, he says, uh, he says, Grushenka is a Russian woman. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, and, uh, and we, we love Russia, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of nationalism, but there's also, and this is a big thing too, Following Napoleon, right, um, as you go into the 1840s, you have the rise of, well, you have the Third French Revolution in Mm -hmm. 1848, and the Third French Revolution kicks off a (laughs) continent-wide series of revolutions, almost every country in Europe. 
Really? Engages in a revolution. Like an and, Arab Spring, only the yeah, European Spring? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, oh. Well, they call it the Spring of Revolutions oh. that year, wow. 1848. They call it the Spring. In fact, so when you talk about the Arab Spring or any of those like subsequent springs, uh-huh. that term came from the term they used oh, wow. for 1848. Is that at all related to the Civil War? I mean, that's 20 years before. Is that is is there any kind of like, in I, the air? Or not no? that I can Completely think of, no, unless you're thinking just philosophy right like philosophically what really kicks off the the revolutions of 1848 is just increasingly people are embracing liberal ideas by liberal i don't mean i mean liberal for then which means like open anti-monarchy okay uh freedom of press freedom of speech freedom of democracy yeah democracy (laughs) all that kind of stuff but also with it in the 1840s, you have the – that's right around the time when you have the first international, which is the um, the first gathering of socialists, mm-hmm. not international. So it's like internationally, people from all over are getting together. And these guys are wanting this spring revolution to jump into a socialist revolution. So Marx is writing during this time. Marx, of course, is not the only socialist. People think he came up with socialism. He didn't. He came up with a special brand of socialism. Okay. Um, and he was a member of the First International. So all of those guys he was with, the most probably the most famous one was a Russian guy named Bakunin, Mikhail Bakunin. Hmm. Um, uh, all those guys, though, were, were kind of the pre-socialists. And these okay. guys were wanting... They were wanting to not just have what they would have called the bourgeois revolution, which the American Revolution would have been a bourgeois revolution, right? And the um, first French Revolution they would have called a bourgeois revolution. With the underclass overthrowing the upper class. Basically. Yeah, they want the they want the they want the workers. Their their big focus is the workers in the proletarian workers in cities. Right. They want those guys to revolt. Here's why all this matters in Russia because these ideas are spreading like wildfire in Russia, and. Um, the Russians are, uh, you just have a lot of radicals in Russia. Terrorism mm-hmm. is huge really? at this time. Yeah, and a lot of socialist radicals, a lot of anarchists. It's a huge thing. In fact, um, Russia starts to really liberalize, even though they're they're on kind of the end of the liberalizing um, uh, spectrum, right? Um, I think the date is 1861, I might have that date wrong. It's early 1860s, but I think it's 1861. Alexander II, so Alexander I is the guy who fought Napoleon. Alexander II frees the serfs in Russia. Oh, wow. And so the serfs were slaves. It's different from American slavery. It wasn't uh, chattel slavery. Right. So it's like not like you had a slave market where you'd sell individual serfs in mm-hmm. Russia, but serfs belonged with land. So if you sold a piece of land, you're selling serfs with it. Okay. Um, so you wouldn't have the the thing like that happened in America where you would sell off husbands and children. Right, right. They were always together. Okay. But they were property, and they were counted as your belongings if okay. you're a nobleman. Interesting. And okay. so Alexander was actually a liberal, right? He's yeah. liberalizing Russia, huh. and it, that wasn't the only thing. He also he started, um, I think, it was the Zemsta movement, where he's like opening up like democratic processes at a local level, mm. but. There were so many radicals in Russia that it wasn't enough. And weirdly, he was assassinated because he wasn't liberal enough. He wasn't, oh, wow. Yeah, so okay. it's like, so he's assassinated, which, of course, meant his successor, um, Nicholas, was going to be a reactionary, right? If he was a liberal, if his father's a liberal and gets killed because he's not liberal enough, then he's like, okay, we don't need to 
get these guys a favor. We need to crush them. So his the, so, son, the socialists, the, uh, or the well, no, 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 well, at no that sorry. Point, they were just Nicholas, liberals. the son of Alexander, so the next czar, Nicholas. Oh, okay. He's okay. going to be like, if my dad tried to make concessions to these people, mm-hmm. and they were huge concessions, and they still killed him for it. I'm going to make no concessions. So the people being the liberals. The liberals, yeah. Headed towards a more radical socialism, yes. kind of? Yeah. Or, okay. Well, he's just he's just talking about that group of people. Okay. Yes. That okay. group. Not all Russians. Just that group. Okay. So okay. basically, he decides, I'm going to crush those guys. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to rid myself. Like, they're not going to be a part of Russia. So what he starts to do then, he actually creates a secret police for the purpose of infiltrating socialist anarchist groups. Okay. Now, let's come back to Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky uh, was low rank, low nobleman. Like he didn't own big. Uh, his family didn't own a lot of land. Okay. His dad, I think, his dad was a physician. Um, uh, there's one story in his early life that is kind of important and impactful. I mean, some things to know about him. His mom was deeply pious, and she mm-hmm. taught him to read based on the scripture and a book of Lives of the Saints. Uh, she was, of course, oh, uh, yeah. Russian Orthodox, right? Yeah. So, um, one story from his childhood is one of those ones he kind of brings back in his life. And it, there are certain allusions to it in this book. And that is when he was uh, eight years old, he found a nine-year-old girl in the, like, in the fields, and she'd just been raped. And oh, she wow. was deeply hurt and traumatized. He runs and gets his dad, and his dad comes and tends to her and takes care of her. Um, and that's like one of these things that he never, not only never forgot, it just was like, deeply definitive to him in terms of what huh. the world he lived in was like. Okay. And so, of course, the Brothers K has a lot about crimes against children. Right, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, there's the fact that, like, Liza Veda is raped by right. Fyodor. Okay. Like, these things so that has things, allusion to his... Yeah, life. to his real to his real experience. Um, he's He doesn't have a good relationship with his father. Uh, he ends up going to military school. Mm-hmm. He's a poor military, like... He always, he's a rule follower. He loves his teachers. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get along with the students. He's physically weak. Just a bad military student, right? He's not the kind of guy you want in there. Yeah. He ends up doing it, though, makes it through, ends up having to serve a little bit of time in the military, which was required. Mm-hmm. But during that time, he takes up writing, which is kind of his big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and after leaving the military, he becomes a journalist, right? Starts writing for newspapers and also writing fiction to publish in magazines. Um, it is during this time, and this is kind of the big thing, he becomes a socialist. And that's why I brought up all that. All Dostoevsky that. does. Dostoevsky okay. actually becomes a socialist. And and this is, a, a, again, tied into a big concern of his, right, which is poverty. Mm-hmm. He's just obsessed with the broken nature of mm-hmm. people's lives, right? I mean, and, and wanting to lift them up out mm-hmm. of it. So in his mind, socialism was the best avenue mm-hmm. to try to get the poor, you know, mm-hmm. lifted out of their... Um, Does that play into Because in the book It's hard for me to I, I don't know the era at all So I don't know Am I envisioning a poor town But there's a lot of wealthy people there But you also have the peasants mm-hmm. They kind of pop up here and there and Well and in particular Snergioff and his family right Oh right Dostoevsky yeah. always has At least one family Featured in his novels mm-hmm. That are destitute In their poverty And the Snergioff family is the one and they end up becoming kind of a central, like yeah. Ilyush's dad, they become a central kind of, like the whole scene when he first goes in their house mm-hmm. and sees yeah. The, yeah. the family is like really, uh, yeah. Any t- you read any of his other books, you're going to see the same thing. Like Crime and Punishment has the exact same. A destitute family yeah. that plays some kind of central role. Exactly. And yeah. that's his, like they represent kind of the people that yeah. need to be. 
Yeah, yeah. Or at concern. least the, the thing he's wrestling with, right? Because he's mm-hmm. wrestling with this reality of just the pain of the world. Okay. Now, he doesn't stay a socialist. Okay. What's going to happen, in fact, in the book, he criticizes socialism a lot. Well, Radican's the one socialist, and he's kind yeah. of a Yeah, pus, well, and, and uh, the Elder Zosima has some... Some yeah. really good critiques of of the human vision for for um, utopia. Oh yeah, right. All of that is while like, maintaining the kind of biblical kernels of socialism, yeah. the kind of yeah, doing good to all people yep. and and everything, but but rejects kind of the the, the human attempt to try to okay. do it. Interesting, which is super interesting. So so here's the key moment of Dostoevsky's life, and I'm sorry, I'm spending way too yeah, much time, no. on this, but this is the it's key a great moment. thirty second overview. <laughs> yeah, great thirty second overview. <laughs> the the key. I, I'm sorry, I'm a tangential guy. I, I start, I get ideas, and I start moving down. But the 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 biggest event in his life happens. He he was involved with this socialist group, not heavily involved. He mostly liked being there. Uh, so he could read their library. He just wanted to read books, and he couldn't afford books. And they had books. So they'd get together at a club and meet, and he'd read stuff. And he rarely took part in conversations. He actually hated the leaders of the group because they were um, atheists. And oh. he just, not That's, hated, hate's probably the wrong word. He just didn't jive with them because he was still devout. He was always devout? Yeah. Dostoevsky? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is, this is under Nicholas I, the son of that czar who'd been assassinated. There's a secret police. They infiltrate that group. Hmm. And the secret police tell the czar about Dostoevsky's group. The whole group is arrested, including Dostoevsky. And they are condemned to death by firing squad. And so Dostoevsky is, is brought out before the firing squad along with all of his buds. The firing squad stands before them. There's the ready, aim, and right before they're about to say fire... A horse rides up, stay of execution, and their sentence is, is, oh my um, gosh. yeah, is they're, they're sent, he's sent to exile in, not exile, he's sent to prison in Siberia. It's, his, his, his death sentence is commuted to a five year sentence in Siberia. So we were one second away from not reading this book. <laughs> yeah. And he considers that the most important moment of his life. Wow. And he basically yeah. says, he says to everybody, he's like, imagine you're going to die and you know it. In the next minute or next second. Like, you know you're going to die right now. You know it. And then all of a sudden somebody tells you, actually, no. You're going to live for a very long time. And he says it will change the, it's like, it Hmm. changes the way you view everything. Wow. Everything changes. And this is something that comes up. It actually didn't come up in Brothers K, but in The Idiot, he really Hmm. contemplates this. Um, Prince Lev, the the main character, talks about a person he knew Hmm. who found joy in every moment of life. Wow. After, because how could you not, right? You're about to die, you know it, and then he says you can't even imagine what that what that life's going to be like. So he spends five years in, in Siberia. After that, he comes out. One more important thing about him, he's an epileptic. Oh. And uh, so epilepsy always plays a huge part in his books as well. Hmm. Um, the idiot, Prince Lev, the main character, is an epileptic. Mm-hmm. And one more thing kind of theologically to note is a lot of... I don't know that you could say theologians. I haven't read a theologian who said this, but it was kind of accepted tradition um, in Dostoevsky's tradition, anyway, in Russian Orthodoxy, that epileptics, and this is kind of something I think a lot of people actually believed, that when having an epileptic fit, they have like a, uh, it's like a holy experience. Like they feel like they're experiencing God. And he believed that about his, he believed that like you transcend this mortal plane, so to speak, when having an that's, epileptic. That's experience. interesting that Smirnikov is the epileptic, epileptic totally. here, and he's 
He's not a believer. No, yeah. he's like the, the foil of anything resembling Christianity. Although he's, you have this complexity of his kind of roots and everything that could feed into his wickedness. Well, and the fact that he kills himself at the end. Yeah. Right. Like a Judas. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> then the final thing is his, his, the remainder of his years when he became a great writer, um, he married twice and he was a scoundrel. I mean, that's one of the things. Really? Yeah. Dostoevsky? Yeah. He was, a, he was always a believer and... Huh. And actually, that kind of heightens his, his I think, just his love of grace and mercy and all those things. Because yeah. he was a scoundrel. He was his first wife. He hated her. She hated him. They respected. He said we were. He said we respected each other like nothing. He says never have I met a greater person in my life. But they couldn't be in the same room with each other for a minute. And he cheated on her constantly. Really. And wow. he, um, his second wife, he married a woman much younger than him. Like. 20 she died his first wife died he married a younger a woman who was much younger than him he did uh according to himself remain faithful to her Mm -hmm. um but he completely destroyed their social situation because he was a horrible gambling addict and he he basically lost everything they ever made and so he lived in he actually lived in destitute poverty even though he was regarded as one of the great writers of his day um and on his deathbed he died of a brain aneurysm on his deathbed. He had his son read him the prodigal son, which he believed is the story of his life. Wow. And so, so, uh, you know, all that feeds into then. Well, the three brothers, are they a composite? Picture? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to, I mean, there's so everything yeah. you're saying there is like, I, I just picture these three brothers, like being him creating kind of his persona, like yeah. him, him living out all these totally. tensions in his own life, wanting to be Alyosha living like, Dimitri. Dimitri doubting. Yeah. I was intellectually. Doubting, I would like, imagine. I, yeah. Yeah, because he's a brilliant man, right? Mm-hmm. So he has, and and he refuses to take the easy answers. Hmm. So so you know, getting to kind of that brief summary then <sighs> yeah. of the book, you have three brothers. Um, the three brothers are. I mean, if you were to characterize them, like you just said, you've got Alyosha, the religious. Um, devotee. Mm-hmm. I, I was about to say zealot. That's definitely the wrong term. He's no, a, he's a he's a love. They call him a lover of. Man, a lover of mankind, which is mm-hmm. a term that the Russian Orthodox use for Jesus. That's actually... Oh, really? Yeah, that's actually... So he's described as a lover of mankind, which is specifically a phrase applied to Jesus. Hmm. Um, and then Ivan is the intellectual. Um, brilliant. He's an atheist. Um, is he an atheist? Uh, he's... Sorry. That, I mean... Yeah, he's I a, mean, he's he a wants to be. He atheist. wants to be an atheist. He's a self-proclaimed <laughs> He's atheist. trying to be an atheist, I yes. feel like. yeah. Um, and then you have Dimitri, who is the sensualist. Yeah, he's the one yeah, who yeah. lacks self-control. Uh-huh. He's the one who, uh-huh. um, he's the one who lives for his passions. Yeah, and that's like if if I'm thinking Dostoevsky, after he gets out of prison, that's Dimitri, mm. right? I mean, he fell into it. I don't think he he got out exactly like that because I would imagine uh, you. I don't know, who am I to say? I don't know. I would imagine he left prison like very very disciplined because he's been mm-hmm, in prison for five mm-hmm. years. But also there's this, this thing of like, Oh, now I can indulge. Right. I mm-hmm. wasn't able to indulge in anything, you know, it's kind of, but what I love about, and I we might be jumping around a little bit, but, um, to, to me, what I love about Dimitri and all the characters, there's a profound honesty to them. Yes. You know, so even in his essential, even, I mean, the court case is so brilliant where he's like, look, I know all the evidence is stacked against me. Yeah. And I will even say I wanted to kill him. Yep. Maybe I would have. Maybe I will. But, you know, but I, I didn't. didn't. <laughs> but I didn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's so, so brutally honest. So even in his like, yes, I am a scoundrel. Yes, I am. And I almost hear, mm-hmm. and just, I don't know this about Dostoevsky, but I was almost wondering, like, I could hear a lot of believers saying, mm-hmm. I know I, I'm yep. jacked up. I know it. I don't totally. need to be told that. I, I admit it. Well, and the thing about him is, when we hear his story, we go, oh, he really was. Mm-hmm. Like, you have the story of Martin Luther, right? When he was mm-hmm. uh, in the monastery and supposedly he would confess for hours on yeah. end and his hmm. his confessor said, Martin, go away and come back when you've committed a sin worth confessing. <laughs> right? It's like every believer feels like they're garbage. But when you read Dostoevsky's life, you're like, oh, he actually, he actually was, was. Right? Yeah, he actually yeah. was. Huh. And, um, and so, but one of the things I think that he did have um, is this incredible, like what you just said, honesty. I think he was so aware mm-hmm. of what was true about him and about the world around him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think about that moment um, when the elder Zosima, who's kind of the moral center of the, of the book, who's Alyosha's teacher, he's a, mm-hmm. a monk. He says to Madame Koklikov, a woman who'd come to ask him, mm-hmm. you know, uh, various questions and to bring her daughter for prayer. He says to her, he says, above all, do not lie, especially to yourself. I think I underlined that, which I, yeah. I didn't mark up the book a lot. And I, I remember hearing that most of the time when Zosima speaks, I've got my pen out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I probably I, won't be able to find it, but. Um, I think I can find it. It might. I, I was sitting there thinking about which spots to mark beforehand. I, know. And no. I have some spots really clearly in my mind. It's um, it's let's see here, page. It's going to be in the sec- the chapter starting on page fifty three. Um, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Wait. Uh, Act of love. Oh, I'm on fifty six, fifty seven. Yeah, and so it's going to be. Oh, lady, yeah. Chapter four is the the lady of little faith. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. So uh, here it is. It's page fifty eight. 58, Page okay. 58, um, the fourth line down in that second paragraph, he says... I marked it. It's yeah. all, look at that. <laughs> Above all, avoid lies, all lies, especially the lie to yourself. Yep. Yep. Keep your own lie, or keep watch on your own lie. Examine it every hour, every <sighs> minute, right? Oh. Um, and then lo- look at this. Skip the next long line. He goes, avoid fear, mm-hmm. though fear is simply the consequence of every lie. Well, that's brilliant. Right? Um, huh. Yeah. Uh, inc- wow. Incidentally, when I was looking for that, I came across another thing. Back up to page 52, kind of getting back at this. Because I do think he had a profound sense of God's grace, yeah. right, um, yeah. in the midst of this. go back, Going back to page 52, that paragraph, the big one, do not be afraid of anything. Never be afraid. Do not grieve. Just let repentance mm-hmm. not slacken in you. And God will forgive everything. There is not and cannot be in the whole world such a sin that the Lord will not forgive one who truly repents. Mm. A man even cannot commit so great a sin as would exhaust God's boundless love. How could there be a sin that exhausts God's love? Only take care that you repent without ceasing. Chase away fear altogether. Believe that God loves you so as you cannot conceive of it, even with your sin and in your sin, he loves you. Golly, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like when you read that kind of stuff, you're like, oh, and you know the man. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. like, this guy believed that, right? And that's what wow. makes this all interesting. I mean, when you're reading Ivan and you're reading his brilliant arguments, mm-hmm. you're reading Dostoevsky's arguments. Yeah. He's not. That's, gonna, you're saying no, most a lot of Christians don't get that. They yeah. think he's 
the protagonist, right? Or, yeah, or yeah. The an, no, antagonist. Antagonist. Yeah, People yeah. look at him as bad. I've heard Christian say that. <laughs> it's it's like, by the way, I should briefly, because you asked me to also summarize the book really quickly, <laughs> really quickly just before I get to that. I want to hold Here. off on that. But I do want to come back to it. The book is really simple in terms of narrative structure. Three brothers, Alyosha, the religious one, Ivan, the skeptic, um, and Dmitri, the sensualist. Yeah. Um, they have a father who's cruel and abusive um, and horrible. And he gets murdered halfway through the book. It is blamed on the eldest son, Dimitri, who hated his father and many Threatened times to kill him. says he's going to kill him. And actually kicked him in the face yeah. with the, the heel of his boot, yeah. which could have killed him. Hmm. And actually at the end of that said, uh, everybody said, he's, you killed him. And he goes, good. And if he doesn't die, I'm going to come back and kill him. Right, yeah. And um, and then the, 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 the second half of the book is all about, or I should say the last probably third, mm -hmm. is all about the trial of Dimitri. Mm -hmm. um, so narratively, that's what plays out. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the characters of two other characters, well, there are a few other characters who are extremely important, but the main ones I'll mention is the Elder Zosima, who I've already described as the moral center of the book. He's the spiritual leader that essentially is Alyosha's teacher. Um, and then Smerjikov, who actually is a fourth brother because half, he, yeah, well, half brother. Yeah. Of course, Dimitri's a half brother to Ivan. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Um, Gotta readjust. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I got Tom. For those of you who are watching, I got Tom in the worst like thrift store chair. That <laughs> well, I just tend to tip chairs backwards, so that's all. It's a comfortable chair. If I you're I one of like back. maybe three people that we've done a live podcast in my actual office. We oh, wow. office. It's not, I it's cleaned great. it up. Actually, I cleaned it. It, it was horrible. Oh, was it? <laughs> I love it. Looked like my college closet. Oh, like, a week well, ago. So no judgment so. on my part. You should see my 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 house. <laughs> um, okay, so that's the summary. Um, uh, well, a couple more things on oh, yeah. the main characters. So Smerjikov is the fourth brother, and Smerjikov is an epileptic. He, uh, By the way, he they don't know he's their brother, and he's not treated as a fool. He's an illegitimate brother. Well, and, and the, uh, describe his mom. I mean, and what happened. His I mean, mom it's, was it's... a mentally challenged woman who got pregnant somehow, and everybody thinks that Fyodor, the father, raped her. Which it is, right? And, and or, it's almost certain that he did yeah. because when she's about to give birth, she comes to his house, right. climbs right. over the fence, and that right there is just is the symbol that the same it, fence that Dmitri climbed over. Exactly, right? yeah. 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 And so, anyway, Smerjikov, who's also an epileptic, who admires Ivan. He 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 thinks Ivan is just the best. Mm -hmm. He he he's a pseudo intellectual that fancies himself as intellectual, and he wants to be smart like Ivan. Um. And, but unlike Ivan, and this is a big difference, he has no moral center. Like, Ivan does. He does. And he does. And Smerjikov does. doesn't. Yeah. And so, and then the last two main characters that I, well, there are some others, but Katerina Ivanovna, who is engaged to Dmitri, but is in love with Ivan, mm -hmm. and Ivan is in love with her, and Dmitri is not in love with her. Mm -hmm. And then you have Grushenka, who Dmitri is in love with, and his father's in love with. Yep. So it's this weird, yeah. like, double love triangle. That's essentially, that's essentially the, the, the bulk of it. What I, now, if, if I remember, I said there was one thing I wanted to come back to. It had to do with, I, oh, you brought up that Ivan uh, is often looked at as, like, an antagonist. Yeah. Uh, He's and, the atheist. Alyosh is the believer, and yeah. you almost want them to be yeah. played off each other as the good guy and the bad guy. Yep. I just, I just didn't even see it that way. Yeah. And, and then when we talked a little bit, 
on Voxer, you know, I was I was a little bummed. They like so many, but I could see that where Christians is no, he's the atheist, so yep. he's kind of like he's going to try to give the anti. Christian arguments and Alyosha is going to defeat him. And I remember reading. Um, so the most famous passage, of course, is the Grand Inquisitor. I was more impressed with the rebellion with rebellion. Yeah. The section before where, I mean, Ivan almost pried me away from my own faith. <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. Oh my it's word! Tough. I, 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 <sighs> I, when my students read it. It's so, so funny. I mean, but I think you should. Like, if you're like, no, no. If your defenses go up, you don't linger in it. You don't jump in sh- in, in Ivan's shoes. I think you've missed the whole point. If you're yep. like, no, 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 no. Yeah. If you just try to shoot down the arguments, I think I I I think you do that section a disservice. I think you need to come on the brink of becoming Ivan before you can fully appreciate the problem yeah. of evil or have you yep. want to articulate. It's so it's such a bummer. I've had you know I I'll, I'll read that with the students and they'll get they'll be perplexed and frustrated and sad and and um and i don't just give them an answer (laughs) like we go through we spend the whole semester trying to work through answers but i don't just sit there and say this is the answer because you can't Mm -mm. like if you walk through this world and you're like oh the pain and suffering of this world because that's what rebellion's about it's 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 ivan's main argument is he's he basically says look more or less a world that has the kind of suffering in it mm-hmm. that we live in. And he says that I'm only going to talk about the kinds of suffering that children experience. He then cites real world experience, real yeah. world things, things that Dostoevsky read in the newspaper. Like all of this stuff is re- really happened. None of oh, those, this are, is real none of those are fictitious. Really? Every single story he brings up is a real story. That's so, fat. So, so this really is Dostoevsky it's himself. Dostoevsky. So uh, I'll just really briefly mention some of the arguments, or some not these aren't arguments, these narratival things that he brings up, these stories, which he then uses as part of an argument to say that God just could not have created the world that we live in. And so he, he tells, for instance, yeah. um, the story of soldiers who uh, would, actually it's a really powerful um, and horrible thing, it gets brutal too. It's, so if you're listening, I mean, it's he he twists that knife over and over, and you're just like, ah, yeah. He even I mean, says, "Do you want me to stop, Alyosha? Am I going? Am I making you feel too bad?" Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I will. Um, for me, if you don't mind, I mean, I don't know. Should I read it, Preston? There's one part sure, yeah, that yeah. for me was always really um, striking, uh, and it's um, it's it's when he talks about Turkish soldiers. Um, oops, let me. Is it two forty-five? It's. Um, I didn't realize that's not that long of a section. And but when we say rebellion, that's just a title. He has tit- Dostoevsky has titles of every chapter. There's, there's four sections, twelve books, and tons of chapters within each book. So this is, I think, I don't know what book this is. Book three yeah. or four. Well, chapter and, four. It's called Rebellion, and it's called Rebellion because. As Ivan brings out, oh my gosh, it's actually, I'm going to wait. I'm going to come to it. Okay, okay. Because, okay, so, so, because I want to read the, the, the core of the argument, but the first um, bit when he first starts talking about it is um, the Turks uh, as they uh, invaded Bulgaria. What page are you on? Uh, this is on page 238. It's the last paragraph. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he says, um, somebody he met told him how Turks and Circassians there in Bulgaria have been committing atrocities everywhere. 
Mm. Um, they burn, kill, rape women and children. They nail prisoners by the ears to the fences. They leave them like that until morning, and in the morning they hang them and so on. And then a few lines down, um, he says, These Turks, among other things, have also taken a delight in torturing children, starting with cutting them out of their mother's wombs and ending with tossing nursing infants up in the air, catching them on their bayonets before their mother's eyes. The main delight comes from doing it before their mother's eyes. Delight. Yeah, they delight in it. But here's a picture that I found very interesting. Imagine a nursing infant in the arms of its trembling mother, surrounded by Turks. They've thought up an amusing trick. They fondle the baby. They laugh to make it laugh. They succeed. The baby laughs. At that moment, a Turk aims a pistol at it, four inches from its face. The baby laughs gleefully, reaches out its little hands to grab the pistol, and suddenly the artist pulls the trigger right in his face and shatters its little head. Artistic, isn't it? By the way, they say Turks are very fond of sweets. So, I, so the big thing for like me just, there just the, is the re- rhetoric at the end. This chapter is a master. You said it when we talked on the phone. Master class in rhetoric. Mm. Because that last line, by the way, Turks are fond of sweets. That's actually why I wanted to read that section. There's this juxtaposition of completely contrasting tones, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You describe this horrific thing, and then he just throws in there, almost non sequitur, mm-hmm. the Turks are very fond of sweets, but there is a purpose to it. His point is Turks are human beings. They like oh. sweets. They not, like that they were, not that they were so numb to the evil that they can just eat a piece of candy after. It's but that they're like they every them? other human. Well, well, it's not just to humanize them. It's to point out that this is who we are. Oh. Human beings are the kinds of people who do this kinds of thing and huh. have no problem with it. Like, it's just what happens, what we do. Well, this is the, 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 the very, you know, what are you driving at? My brother, Alyosha, says, then Ivan says, I think that if the devil does not exist and man has therefore created him, he has created him in his own image. Exactly. Likeness. We are devils. Right oh, now, he continues with these same as well as God. Then, like we've created a God in our own image who allows this kind of crap to go on. Yeah, exactly. Is what I've been saying. Yep. Um, and and one of the things about this chapter is is that uh, is that he actually is answering subtly every Christian response. Hmm. Yeah. So he addresses the question of of. The idea of that all of this will be reconciled in heaven. Like, he basically says, okay, that's fine. Great. But he says, he, he essentially says, does that erase what right. happened? I know. Right? He says, does <laughs> that create justice in this world? So he takes away even like Christian universalism. It's like, okay, yep. okay, let's let's just entertain this for mm-hmm. a second and say if God reconciles it. But still... They had. They still have to yep. go through. And what about this one? This is why I often hear Christians saying it drives. It's driven me crazy. And this has made it even like well, the evil that exists shows us the goodness of God. Okay, so this God needed this child to get his head blown off. Yeah, <laughs> fondled, laughed, and head blown off. That's the way we can know God's goodness. Like, does that? That That's- just sounds like. I've never liked that argument. I never knew why until now. <laughs> I know. Well, he, he actually addresses that specifically. Um, yeah. And I'm trying to remember does, exactly where he? that line yeah. is. Here it is, page 242. It's the big paragraph. It's like the last like seven lines. Mm-hmm. He says, without it, they say, yeah, man I- could not even have lived on the earth, for he would not have known good and evil. Who wants to know this damned good and evil at such a price? <laughs> the whole world of knowledge is not, and this is the key word here, worth 
the tears of that little child to dear God. He's referencing a young girl who, as a punishment, her parents locked her up in an outhouse overnight, freezing in her own feces, and she's crying out to God to save her, and God does nothing to save her. And that's like, and so he says, the whole world of knowledge, knowing everything isn't worth that. Which, by the way, Hmm. the thing about Ivan is, and what makes him different from Smerdjikov, and this is a key part of this book, Ivan teaches nihilism early in the book. He says, if there's no God, no immortality, then everything is permissible. Right, right. But Ivan cannot live in that world. He... He cannot. He's he's too good. That's the thing. Hmm. His his thing is he's too good to allow this hmm. kind of evil in the world. Now, by the way, let's really quickly go to page two forty five. Um, he he sits here and and this is kind of his key, and this is where the rhetoric is absolutely incredible. Oh, he pushes Alyosha. Yeah, he really <laughs> pushes Alyosha. So it's that that it's the big paragraph. <sighs> He says, people will say, when, 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 when we're in heaven, we'll look back and we'll say, Lord, you are just, just art thou, O Lord. But I do not want to cry out with them. While there is still time, in meaning, while I'm still alive, I hasten to defend myself against it. And I therefore, therefore, I absolutely renounce all higher harmony. In other words, I'm not going to do that. I'm saying right now, I will never tell God he was just. It is not worth one little tear of even that one tormented child who beat her chest with her little fist and prayed to dear God in a stinking outhouse with her unredeemed tears. Not worth it because her tears remain unredeemed. They must be redeemed. Otherwise, there can be no harmony. But how? How will you redeem them? Is it possible? Can they be redeemed by being avenged? This is one of the Christian responses. Well, he's going to suffer. He's going to go to hell. But what do I care if they're avenged? I don't care if he's avenged or if she's avenged. I care that she doesn't suffer. Yeah. I don't care. And then he goes, and then this is actually brilliant here. What do I care if the tormentors are in hell? What can hell set right? If these ones have already been tormented, where is the harmony if there's a hell, by the way? He's saying. Like, yeah. how, how have we eliminated pain? Huh. The, the, where is the harmony if hell exists? I want to forgive and I want to embrace. I don't want more suffering. And if the suffering of children goes to make up the sum of suffering needed to buy truth, then I assert beforehand that the whole of truth is not worth such a price. I do not finally want the mother to embrace. Right? She's saying, I don't want any of this. Skip down. Is there, a, is there in the whole world a being who could and would have the right to forgive? I don't want harmony. For the love of mankind, I don't want it. Meaning, the love of mankind. Is yeah. that that same word that's applied? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's applied to Alyosha. That's interesting. I never huh. thought of that. What he's saying there is he's like, it's unjust to forgive them too. It's uh, just to, it's unjust to send them to hell because now you have no harmony, but it's also unjust to forgive them mm-hmm. because what they did is horrible. Mm-hmm. There is no solution here, mm-hmm. he's saying. And by the way, I think here Dostoevsky's kind of interjecting a little bit of his theology. He says, mm-hmm. is there and could there be anyone who could do such a thing? He's kind of saying it all has to be in mm. Jesus. But he's going to have a response uh, to that too. Yeah, I don't want harmony. For the love of mankind, I don't want it. I want to remain with unrequited suffering. I'd rather remain with my unrequited suffering and my unquenched indignation. Here's the key. Even if I am wrong. Even if I'm wrong. I, I've heard well, that's people... That's even italicized. Is that yeah. on purpose? Oh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Have you ever met somebody who said that though? Where they're like, they're like, 
basically, even if I'm wrong, I know I'm right. Like I would rather, hmm. like, like basically when I stand before God, I am the just one and he's the unjust oh, one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like even if I'm wrong and your whole worldview is right, that worldview is Is wrong. bad. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And I would choose to go to hell being, I mean, it's, it's weird, but he's essentially saying I would choose to go to hell being in, like holding to my virtue mm-hmm. rather than to acknowledge. It's kind of like when people say on a more pop level, like I can never love a God who yeah. they're putting God in the dock and yep. right. Um, Correct. So I, well, the thing I, for the readers, like this is never really resolved. The only resolution I could see is it's internal inconsistently. We can't live this way. And this and I'm going to let me know if I'm on to something here. There's such an emphasis on truth being manifested in how we live, um, not in kind of this like altogether put together worldview. It's, it's Zosima saying, you know, love all people and love is an action and, and mm-hmm. do, do, do. Um, and the, the, where Ivan's argument falls apart is not in the argument itself. I don't think it's ever actually intellectually resolved. It's, it's resolved in the sense that Smirnikov is living out Ivan's ethic. Yes. <laughs> and yet um, it's like, this is obviously you can't live this way that there is, if there is no God, there is no morality. It's like, well, your whole argument's built on there being some kind of moral foundation. Is that? Yes. And, and actually, so yes, he doesn't just give a resolution. This is a tough thing for, I mean, it's tough to begin with. Yeah. It's one of the things I actually struggle with. I mean, I, I don't know anybody's ever directly come out and criticized me for it. Um, but I have had, I mean, Christians, it's not just Christians. Everybody wants this, but uh, as a Christian, I'm speaking, Christians want to be able to say they have the answers to everything, right? Yeah. yeah. They, and, and they feel like, and, 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 and of course, 90s apologetics yeah. asserted that we did, right? <laughs> like, not, not, like people in the 90s who were going around doing apologetics classes and courses, and they kept saying, oh, no, we have an answer for everything. And we don't. Right. That's the thing. We don't. And people... <laughs> Once people kind of started realizing that that was true, they realized that, well, there's there's actually, like, there are some things that we are just left mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. a bit of confusion. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is we're just rehashing stuff that people have been talking about for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? right? I mean, have you ever read Candide? No. Candide, that's a quick read, if I you want to. I don't know what that is, that book. It's Candide. by Voltaire. Oh, wow, it's a, yeah. it's we, have, we actually read it in my school. Um, and uh, Dostoevsky clearly references Candide throughout this book. Okay. Candide is a satire. Uh, okay. And it's Voltaire is writing in Candide in probably the 1770s, I would imagine. Um, or I'm, I'm thinking 1770s roughly. And he's writing in response to Leibniz, um, who wrote a theodicy in the uh, 1600s. So um, Leibniz in his theodicy, of course, uh, he basically more or less says, God would allow evil, provided that evil brought about a greater good, um, mm. that it that could not be achieved without that evil, right? Mm-hmm, mm. What might that look like? Maybe free will would be an example, right? Like mm-hmm. if you like if if you offer free will, bad is going to come. Mm-hmm. But free will is such a good thing that we have to give it, uh, or the God would have to give it. And yeah. so, but then also Leibniz, who's who's I don't know that it would have been. I actually don't know theologically where he lined up because he Voltaire? Most always, yeah. no, Leibniz. Oh, oh, oh. Leibniz always wrote in a 
philosophical context. So I actually don't know like hmm. his religious leanings. I would suspect he would have been like a pretty strong Calvinist okay. for life. He was, he believed in determinism. Uh, he believed uh, in some, his view of free will is, was a kind of compatibilist view of free will. Okay. But uh, I, I say that because in that theodicy, he says, he makes a really simple argument. He says, God always chooses what's best. Therefore, we actually live in the best possible world. Like it couldn't be better than the world we actually live in. That's one of the conclusions that he comes to because every single okay. decision was one made by God. And if a decision was the wrong one, then God would have had to be lacking in either power, knowledge, mm -hmm. or goodness. Mm -hmm. But he's not lacking in those things. So that means every decision must be the good one. Okay. And Leibniz, or, uh, Voltaire is like, that's insane. <laughs> and what Voltaire then does is he writes a whole book like Rebellion. Everything is oh, cataloging really? all of the atrocities oh, of wow. mankind. And it's all humorous. It's You don't read Candide and feel like you do at the end of Rebellion. It's a comedy. The whole thing is, okay. is but it's a gross, disturbing comedy okay. because he's constantly making light of these horrible things that are sometimes exaggerated, but are mostly just what humans mm. were experiencing through that time. Wow, right? wow. And so this, so, and, and at the end of the day, Voltaire's big thing is to attack Leibniz's argument about the fact that God would allow evil provided it brought a greater good. Voltaire's essentially saying, what is the greater good? And he essentially says every single thing Christians give him aren't greater. They're not worth yeah. it. That's the big thing. It's not worth it. Not worth it. And that's what Ivan is saying yeah, right yeah, here. Yeah. Nothing is worth it. Yeah. Nothing is worth all this pain. I yeah. want to read this last part of this real yeah. quick, the last part of the paragraph, because this is where the rhetoric really is awesome and where the title comes from in the chapter. Actually, let me pause you. i got to go to the bathroom yeah. real oh, yeah, quick. Go so I'm going to hit pause right here. <laughs> okay. Yes. Have it in. All right, we're back. Oh, I was going to have some uh, nice Russian vodka for us, but since it's like 10 in the morning, I decided to go with coffee. <laughs> All right, so we're at the, we're at the uh, end of Rebellion. End of, yeah, this, that, uh, page 245. It's the last. It's, this is where the rhetoric and really where the force of his argument comes in. He says, besides, uh, so it's about the last four lines of that paragraph, five lines. Besides, they have put too high a price on harmony. Harmony is his term oh. for it all making sense, right? That that we actually stand there in heaven and go, yes, all of this actually makes sense from God's perspective, right? Um, they place, place too high a price on harmony. We can't afford to pay so much for admission. And therefore, I hasten to return my ticket. And it is my duty, if only as an honest man, to return it as far ahead of time as possible, huh. which is what I'm doing. It's not that I don't accept God, Alyosha. I just most respectfully return him the ticket. And then Alyosha says, that is rebellion. So what he's saying is, is, is essentially he's like, essentially he's saying, I don't even care if I'm right. This God, the world we live in is either no God at all, or if there is one, he's so evil, I refuse to be on his side. Oh, wow. Right? No. So that's where it's rebellion, right? It's, on the one hand, it's not rebellion if there's no God. But if there is, and he's saying, I right return him the ticket then it's rebellion so it's always he's not trying to make it almost like a definitive argument against the existence of god not right? necessarily like, like well, th just that line where he says it's not it's not that i don't accept god Alyosha. Yeah. and there's such an endearment too Alyosha, yeah. you know he says his name and everything here's here's what threw me for a loop so i'm 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 reading this this is uh, i read it at night 
And I'm just like, oh, my God. I mean, he just... I mean, I've obviously wrestled a problem of evil and stuff and all this stuff, but he no. just rubs your face in it, right? So I'm like, all right. It was, like, late at night. I'm like, all right, Grand Inquisitor tomorrow, most famous section. You know, pretty long section. I'm going to wake up early because uh, here's my assumption. I knew nothing about it. <laughs> Alyosha is going to rescue <laughs> my my doubts. And he does. It's not he even Alyosha. It. He keeps going. Yep. I mean, I'll say Dostoevsky because you would almost assume, right? Like first mm-hmm. reading of this book, you'd almost assume, okay, we've let him have his time. Dostoevsky's a Christian. Alyosha's a good guy. There's got to be a response. Yeah. There's no response. No response. So tell us I about... I mean, there, there is a response, but it's not it, a satisfying one. And it's not really in the Grand Inquisitor. No. Well, sort of. Because the response... So so let me say two things with it. Alyosha's response is Dostoevsky's response in the Grand Inquisitor. And and without going okay. into too, too much detail, let me just express it like this. Alyosha basically plays off of one of the comments I made a moment ago where where Ivan says... Could there be anybody who could make this harmony? Could there be anybody who would have the right to forgive? And Alyosha goes, yes, Jesus. Yeah. And then Ivan says, ah, yes, the Nazarene. <laughs> you guys always wheel him out, right? When I'm about to, right? And that's when he brings up the Grand Inquisitor, which is a parable. The Grand Inquisitor is a parable. In short, it's set in the Middle Ages. You have a Jesuit priest who is an Inquisitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course, like the Inquisition was set up for heresy trials when mm-hmm. people would come and and well, people would be accused of heresy for a million different reasons. Mm-hmm. But whatever the reason, if they were found guilty, they would then go through what's called an auto da fe, which is an act of faith, and those could be all sorts of those could be different things. But the final auto da fe is burning at the stake. You burn them alive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. In this parable, Jesus appears in the Middle Ages doing all the things that he did, the kinds of things that he did Mm -hmm. in the first century. Mm -hmm. And um, an an inquisitor finds him, has him arrested as a heretic, Mm -hmm. and is going to kill him. And then the inquisitor has a long conversation with him, which in short, because we could... Obviously, it's long, mm-hmm. but in short, essentially, what he says is he, he what, what what Ivan's doing here is he's answering two responses that Christians give because he's always so much of what he's doing is responding to Christian yeah. responses. He's two steps ahead. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so one of those responses is, of course, to basically put down the idea of the um, incarnation at all. Like there's like that that it was wrong. That it was the wrong choice. Right. But the second one is to deal with the free will defense because the free will defense is the most common response to the problem of evil. It has its own problems, even if one doesn't entirely believe in free will, like, or sorry, even if one fully embraces free will Mm -hmm. as a, as Mm -hmm. like reality, metaphysical reality, it still has its own problems. For instance, that it doesn't account for uh, natural evil, right? Or natural pain, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Or it doesn't account for the, the severeness Mm -hmm. of the pain. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Allow people to choose, but don't let them choose to do such horrible things. Right. 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 Um, those kinds of things. Um, but Ivan basically says, "Look, look, look. Freedom is bad. Right. Right. Nobody wants freedom, <laughs> and they don't. We want security. Yeah. We want to be safe. We want to be. We want to be safe. We want to be well fed, and we want it to be provided for. And we are willing to do anything for that, mm-hmm. which seems to be largely true. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, humanity mm-hmm. above all wants safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you might. And by the way, I mean." 
this is obviously a recurring political theme right now, right? People are always mm-hmm. arguing over freedom or safety, freedom or safety. And right. I find it interesting because people just always land on safety. They say right. that they land on freedom, but they're always landing on safety, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, not maybe, I shouldn't say 100% of the time, that's probably not nuanced to me, but in general, mm-hmm. like you can be one who is espousing like some kind of freedom principle and yet it does seem that generally speaking what you're being yeah. motivated by is a desire yeah. to be safe in your Well, that's context. there's been a, a lot of psychological work done on this, the rise of safetyism. You can even, if you just even do like, if you analyze like how many times the word harm is used in kind of moral arguments, mm-hmm. it's like skyrocketed in the last like seven years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's gone like, woo, like everything is just like harm this, harm that. Yeah. And uh, Jonathan Haidt is going way off on a tangent. He, tra- mm-hmm. he traces it all the way back to like, he said even back in like in the um, the 80s when they started putting kidnap kids on milk cartons. Oh, wow. The awareness of stuff that was going on, even though it was so rare yep. for somebody to be kidnapped. And 90% of the time is a family member, right? Like somebody yep. really, nobody, rarely, yep. rarely does somebody open up the van and throw somebody in, you know. Um, but you have these milk cartons yep. that the six kidnappings a year or whatever would be on millions of milk cars. So, yeah. so that's when parents, and this is a generation I was raised in yeah. when, you know, I used to ride my bike, you know, just all day long, be gone at six years old or whatever. But like, I remember the shift mm-hmm. when you started seeing these milk cartons. All of a sudden now our parents started getting freaked out. Like there's kidnappers on every corners and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And like, and Jonathan Haidt traces it to that kind of era when even though violence and everything has been going down and mm-hmm. since the eighties has gone skyrocketed down. Yeah. Racism all time low. Yeah. That's, that's going to freak some people out, but <laughs> yeah. if you measure it, measure. I mean, it's, it's compared to any other time in history, violence, murder, uh, racism, poverty, everything is plummeted, yeah. but the awareness has gone through the roof Yeah, and you, I hope I'm tracing this right. And then it's the rise of the first generation that has the only world they know is instant access to all this stuff, 2013, 2014, 2015. And that's when the rise in safetyism starts going through the roof to where we are now, to where you have, typically it's more left-leaning politically people who it's this harm, safety kind of, Mm -hmm. that's the moral lens to read everything through, you know. I will say though, and you know, I I will say that the conservatives, I think are inconsistent on this because the language, the language on this is conservatives embrace freedom the left, or I should say the right embraces freedom, huh. the left embraces uh, safety, right? That that's, but if you watch, it's still the same. Like, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I just, uh, I'm listen, just listening to a podcast where um, they were talking about, um, you know, the laws, kind of a law, I think it was a law, I don't think it was a like a, a an executive a, uh, order or anything, that basically forbade uh, certain kinds of uh, books that potentially could teach Critical race theory or something like that. In oh, yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. I'm listening to this podcast where it's it's I talking about these books that were basically being put up for potential banning, right, um, based on the fact that they taught critical race theory in the schools. Hmm. And they were interviewing the the people who were arguing that they needed to not be there. Now, these, no doubt, uh, these are people who are right-leaning, and they're people who are going to 100% um, – be upset that that people are trying to get Huck Finn out of the schools and like you know they're gonna yeah, their arguments yeah. in general are gonna be we want freedom not safety from hearing things we shouldn't hear and don't get me wrong I'm not like a like a, I mean I'm actually really not a fan of critical theory at all like yeah, yeah. so I'm not trying to defend critical theory yeah. I'm just pointing out that 
all the arguments that they used yeah. were safety arguments. My uh, kid will be exposed to something that will make him feel like he's a racist or to uh, hate his wife something like that. And so it's like the same principle. I've seen similar things like when it comes to um, the, the vaccine thing, right? Mm-hmm. You find people who tend to be anti-vaccine. When it came to the question of the uh, of, of uh, COVID itself, mm-hmm. they're like, we've got to stop being scared. We've got to stop being afraid, all mm-hmm. these things. But then the initial arguments, most of the arguments about vaccination that I've heard are like, but but they're scary. Like they potentially could lead to these various harm things. And I'm like, oh, wow. you right. I mean, so, so I, I mean, I only say it to say that like we play the safety yeah. freedom thing inconsistently. Cause I've, I've heard the left, huh. like, here's another thing. Um, the people on that podcast I was listening to, it was actually, by the way, the most or second to most recent episode of this American life. Okay. Just if people are interested, um, those who are kind of clearly arguing that those books by black authors should be allowed to be on on the shelves in Texas. We're arguing from a freedom standpoint. Wow. They're like, we yeah. can't ban books. We yeah. need free. And all the while, I'm thinking, you guys want to ban Huck Finn for sure. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that a thousand times. Huck like, Finn? Why? Because they're N word in Huck Finn a lot, right? Now, and that, by the way, I mean, what's that? Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, that's like, oh yeah, it's all because it contains they, it. Yep, yep. And Even though, like, the Kill a Mockingbird, these books are. Like the narrative is against racism. Exactly. It's actually you can't really do unless you yeah, contain yeah, racism yeah. to confront within the narrative. Exactly. We're literally like when you're talking about Huck Finn, you're talking about a literal monument in the fight against racism. Hmm, really? <laughs> right? Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, Huck Finn is oh, it's so many things. I mean, I would never want to boil it down to anything, but for sure, a huge part of that book is a satirical reflection on on the absurdity of racism. Hmm. Right. But you know, by the way, this is a horrible tangent, but the, the, everybody nowadays, everybody is functioning in kind of that. I mean, I I guess I'd put it this way. The way that people always think about evangelical Christian art from the Mm nineties, super unsubtle, super (laughs) unnuanced. Uh, it's, it's always like, like clear good versus evil, even though what is being conveyed is not really accurate. That's the way everybody views the world now, right? Yeah. Everybody essentially, like I've thought about this because I'm a big film fan. Increasingly people are making movies where there is a, they're preaching. These are movies in which people are preaching Mm -hmm. their philosophy. It's unnuanced and like, there's no room for mm-hmm. any pushback at all in the films. That's not, like, when you think of great films, like like a great book, like this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a great book, yeah. Brothers K, because he's not just sitting there, I mean, it, he's, he's not, it's not, I probably shouldn't say this, I've never seen it, it might actually be, but from what I want, God's not dead. Yeah. I've not seen it, maybe it's good, I don't know, but I've always heard that it's like the most insanely <laughs> one-dimensional, yeah. like, oh, we can easily knock down any argument. Yeah. That is not this. No, right? yeah, and, yeah. and and the thing is, is that everybody is making God's not dead now. And everybody is believing mm-hmm. as if it's like a religious yeah. thing. You have to believe things and we can't challenge them. And we, we're scared to even think mm-hmm. about whether or not they're mm-hmm. wrong. And we certainly can't let people get the wrong ideas. So we're going to protect them from ever hearing the wrong ideas. Gosh. Which is what... So problematic. And is what it's Christianity so... has been forever too. Right? And that will lead to a bunch of 28-year-old atheists who were stars in the youth group and homeschooled. Yeah. I mean, I, or n- 
whatever, you know, because like an, an, I've said this recently, an uninterrogated faith is a fragile faith. that's about to die. Like if you, if you don't, if you don't marinate in rebellion and don't give a response, you know, this, like just rub your face in it. This, this is some of the messiness of a Christian worldview. Now for, for me, I don't need everything to be worried. If everything's too ironed out, I start getting a little nervous. Like "Eh." sometimes I almost don't trust it. Like Mm -hmm. if, if Eliosha came in and just gave like airtight, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, there's just stuff here that just cannot be resolved. And if somebody tries to, I start to be like, uh, I don't know if I trust you. Like, yeah. I don't know if you've appreciated the tension here. At the end of the day, I look at the Christian worldview as it makes the best sense of all of the other options, yeah. but it doesn't have everything all worked out. Yeah. That's where I'm fine reading the book of Joshua and saying like, you know, my daughter comes to me all the time. and like, what do we do with the con? What do we do with this? I'm like, I don't, I'm not okay with this. And I'm like, I'm not really okay either. I've tried to give her the simplistic yep. answer sometimes. Like, well, they're really bad people and got to punish them. She's <laughs> yeah. like looking at me like, really? Like women and children? Like, all, you know, like yep. Yep. I'm like, but if I say no, this is one of the several difficulties that, that we as a Christian worldview we have. And by the way, every, every system is going to have it. Yep. I think atheism does ultimately, seems like it ultimately lead to nihilism. And yep. I think that's kind of part of the counter argument. That is um, definitely part of his counter argument. Yeah. Before I get to that, I would like to just kind of reflect on what you just said, because this is where it gets a little scary, I think, kind of thinking about history, because when people have both an uncritical faith and an inability to allow anybody to challenge that faith, mm-hmm. um, the result is typically violence, right? Mm. Like we just talked about the Inquisition. The, the, mm, the Inquisition wow. largely arises because, because, honestly, Christians are like, thinking for themselves. They were like, actually, let's read it. And like, oh gosh, that doesn't say what we thought Christians were supposed to believe. And they're like, maybe we shouldn't believe what we've been told. Mm. And when you can't win an argument, then it's really hard naturally. Like I just think back to when I was a kid, like it is a human impulse to respond in violence, right? Mm -hmm. Like as a kid, I would be like, okay, you want to fight? You know what I mean? Like that's where you go. And, um, you can, like, you just see that increasingly. I mean, thankfully, I think we're still a culture that really disavows violence. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you could, I mean, I've seen people say scary things where they're just like, nope, these people are less than human. They're not, mm-hmm. like, these mm-hmm. people are not worthy to engage in debates with. Yeah. They're, you know, and of course, the constant everybody's Hitler or everybody's, right. then yeah. just makes it, well, they're not somebody to argue with. They're actually somebody to just do away with. You know what's scary is I've done a little, little bit of research on the Rwandan genocide. Here you have the most back in 19, what, 94? Um, yeah, I think so. So h- how do you get to a place to where the most Christianized country, 80, 90%, like Sunday morning, houses are empty, everybody's at church. Mm. The most Christianized country in 90 days, it's the most massive slaughter of any human, I think in history, 800,000 people killed in, ni- in 90 days, 30 days maybe, I forget. Wow. With neighbors walking next door, babies on their backs with machetes, slaughtering their neighbor who the night before they're having tea with. Yeah. But, like, how does that happen? And people trace, uh, going back here now, 10 years since I read stuff on this, but it was this rhetoric of, you know, the Hutus and Tutsis and you know, one group was calling the other, they kept calling them cockroaches, like reducing their humanity to where now they're not even human anymore. And here's what I fear is exactly what you said is in our rhetoric today, no longer are, you know, Republicans and Democrats, whatever, no longer is there like, I really disagree with your policies. I really think you're wrong on economics. I think your social things are, 
no longer are you just wrong. Now you're evil mm-hmm. and almost less than human. Yeah. And I see, I'm seeing that happen on both sides. I'm like, yeah. I, I'm not a fear monger, conspiracy theorist, whatever, but like that, that's not a, no one would have thought the Rwanda, well, I don't know, no one, but I mean, again, super Christianized erupts in this kind of mm-hmm. massive overnight almost. I mean, it wasn't yeah. overnight, but the, but the seeds was the seeds sown where this other group mm-hmm. is less than human. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, yeah. I mean, you can see it like on Twitter. I mean, people will specifically <laughs> say these things. Oh my they'll God. sit there and they'll say like, it, because it is a, it is a, a view to essentially say, like, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember the most recent time I heard it. I feel like there was a, I don't know, it was a podcast I was listening to or a t- tweet I saw where they, they essentially are just making fun of people who say, oh, there's truth on both sides, right? Oh. And, you know, something like that, where they're yeah. basically saying, look, some people are just the enemy and we have to, you know, that's really the wow, idea. Yeah. Some people are just the enemy. And that's the re- reduction to Hitler all the time or something, mm-hmm. or the reduction to Stalin or, yeah, you know, you yeah, name it. I mean, yeah. it's at some, people are just saying, well, at some point we just have to right. get rid of them. Oh. Right? I mean, I don't know if you know this, but French Revolution, yeah. the first one, the original, mm-hmm. 1789, um, the most famous member of the French Revolution, Robespierre, Maximilian Robespierre, okay. um, he's the guy who spearheaded the, the, the famous reign of terror. He... This, this blows my mind. Did he have a Twitter account? No, not yet. No, not yet. <laughs> not at that point. Uh, he uh, was against the death penalty. He believed the death penalty was wow. inhumane. He believed it was wrong. He's the guy who spearheaded the terror. And the terror, they killed 26,000 Parisians over a three-month span with a guillotine. Wow. He spearheaded that whole thing, by the way, without due process of law, which he was also a firm believer in. Mm-hmm. And the reason, like, I'm so fascinated by him, and I'm so, like, I find him one of the most interesting people in history. Mm. He was known as Robespierre the Incorruptible. He he had these liberal convictions, mm. um, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of, wow. of assembly. He believed the death penalty was morally wrong. He he was considered the incorruptible because he would not take bribes. He would not he made a faith violate his convictions. No, uh-huh. uh, no. Um, he did propose a an alternative religion in uh, in his days as kind of like leading the government where he believed religion was necessary for a good functioning state, mm-hmm. but he didn't believe. He might have believed like deistic, you know, mm. kind of God, but but he could do the terror. Wow. And how could he do the terror? And the answer is because he came to the belief that the political enemies, his political enemies were acting in bad faith. Oh, wow. And that the only way to attain his dream, which was a truly free, functioning France, is to get his enemies out of the way. His enemies being the upper class? or what, No. Or, so by the time he comes to power, it's purely political. The upper class has been basically abolished. I mean, you still have upper class in terms of wealth, but the nobility has been done away with by uh, the nobility. The early part of the revolution was mostly spearheaded by, oh, by okay. nobility. I need um, to read up on the yeah. Offline, you can give me some recommendations. I keep, yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, so uh, wow. it, it's just one of those things. But you definitely see that. I mean, it's. I'm glad Twitter's not a real place. Otherwise, it'd be. <laughs> be kind of. <laughs> I said my my policy on Twitter is. Um, I assume every account's a Russian bot. Yeah. Unless unless they prove themselves to have humanizing rhetoric. Yeah. So once they do that, oh, it's okay. okay now it's yeah. a human. Otherwise, it's, it's, just, a human. it's a robotic account. Yeah. Which uh, most of my followers are ro- robots. I think. But well, did you ever? Hear, I mean, not. I mean, 
<laughs> you ever see Dave Chappelle said that? I don't know if you heard about that. <laughs> That's where I got it from. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he said, yeah, I just loved it. When you said that, it popped in my head immediately. Yeah. Well, I'm glad because I don't give it whatever. Twitter's uh, not a real place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I even heard, I think like 7% of the population has an account and like 3% active, or maybe it's 20%. Uh, it, it's a really small percentage that yeah. are. You get the impression if you if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, which I would never recommend on my worst enemy, yeah. um, you get this weird, weird view of the world, yeah. you know. And then you yep. walk around, and you think people are actually like this. Yeah. But if you invert it and you just like, if your world is actually the embodied world you live in, like people are as literally as no, bad. no, no, <laughs> no one's yeah. screaming at you, yelling at me, you know, yeah. <laughs> like no, for sure. You know what <laughs> is scary though when I th- when you think about it, again, not wanting to like I'm just a guy who I just think a lot about history. Mm-hmm. The Bolsheviks, when they took over in Russia, mm-hmm. they had an extreme minority. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, they only <laughs> held like 20-some percent of hmm. seats, and they basically were able to gain power hmm. because the rest of Russia was tired of fighting, and they were kind of like, look, we're going to let you guys do this since you want it so bad, hmm. and we're just going to sit back and not do anything. So it's like, it's a weird thing, but oh, wow. the minority can actually... Like, like I'm totally on board with people who are like, dude, that's not the real world. If you interact mm-hmm. with real human beings, it's not the same, which is true. And by the way, even the worst Twitter offender, if you were to sit down and look at yeah. them face to face, they would change their rhetoric tremendously, right? Oh, like yeah, oh, yeah, just yeah. interacting at a human level changes everything. Yeah. But, you know, and like for me, incidentally, it's like, that's one of those things that ev- like everybody needs to have. You just need to have people in your life who yeah. don't agree with you. And then ask yourself whether the rhetoric you're using is correct, right? right I mean, right. you know, it's like, uh, you know, I mean, I could give tons of examples, but I mean, I have, well, I have a friend who's an agnostic communist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a communist. He loves Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. He is pro-choice. He's all these different things that, and I'm like, well, he's he's actually one of my good friends. He's a really nice <laughs> yeah, guy. Yeah. So it's like, you just <laughs> the reality is you just have to, like, if you stop and think about it, you're like, okay, is he... Does he, you know, and I have a very conservative position on abortion, for instance, but does he want to exterminate all, or like, is he in favor of killing babies? The answer is no. So clearly the argument is something that lies a little differently (laughs) from just his moral sentiment. But people are trying to make it all about the moral sentiment. And they'll say something like, he's evil because he has this view, right? But when you actually love people who have these... Views, then you're like, okay, it's got to be more than that. It's right? more nuanced. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting yeah. Let's way get back to field. so so walk so Grand Inquisitor. Mm-hmm. You, going back to the free will thing, wasn't there a part he talks about the temptation of Jesus and said Jesus had the opportunity to reign over the world. Yes, and he messed up. He, he gave us free it. will. He gave us freedom. <laughs> that's his. That's, that's his whole. That's his rhetoric. And Grand Inquisitor is like, we don't want freedom. Freedom's bad. If he would have reigned mm-hmm. and protected us and kept us safe, everything would have been great. So his anthropology is pretty spot on. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think that's his... But what I love about this is, is it actually shows that the answer to the problem of evil is just not clear. Because you can sit there and say, okay, I see your point, but I don't know that it's right. It still seems to me that Jesus did the right thing. Alyosha says the same thing. Mm-hmm. At the end, he goes, well, he goes, Jesus is the good guy. In your story. <laughs> and Ivan basically doesn't, like, Ivan, huh. I think there's just saying, well, I guess it kind of depends on what your perspective is. Yeah, yeah. Now, there comes a moment in the Grand Inquisitor where Jesus, after hearing the Inquisitor give his talk, the Inquisitor then says, what's your response? Or what do you, like, I'm going to let you go. I'm actually not going to kill you. 
And then Jesus goes and he kisses the Inquisitor. Right? Yeah. And it's that's like Zosima did something like that earlier. Too. Uh, yeah. And well, and also that's Ali, how Alyosha responds. And this is the response to the Grand Inquisitor. So we should actually read that. Yeah. Um, Give me a page. Uh, I need to look that up real quick. Where he kisses here. him? Is that the end of the Grand Yeah, it's at the end of the Grand Inquisitor. So it's going to be um, basically two. So page 263. Okay. Oh, I love this little bit. Oh, actually, I'm going to back up to 262. Okay. Um, he goes, this is at the end, the very last paragraph on 262. It's nonsense, Alyosha. It's just a muddled poem yeah. of a muddled student who never wrote two lines of verse. I love I that love he keeps calling fact. it a poem because it's not a poem. Yeah. It's prose. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, why are you taking it so seriously? You don't think I'll go straight to the Jesuits now to join the hosts of those who are correcting his deed? Meaning, like, do you yeah. think I'm going to go and... The Jesuits are like the conservative religious people, right? Or yeah, like and the... and I think this is a kind of almost like a, uh, I know like a, a subtle oblique attack against Catholicism, oh, okay. which yeah. is of course you know fundamentally very different from Orthodoxy, in particular with respect to its structure, right? I mean, huh. the Catholics like in that day, and probably not entirely differently today, although the methodology would be different. They want to be universal. That's the thing. Everything it, it like and and it all needs to submit under our authority. That's the goal of everything, hmm. right? And so, so Dostoevsky has kind of a veiled attack against them by saying, "This is what the Jesuits want. They want to be in control and fix everything and control everything themselves." Hmm. When he's a like kind of, I think Dostoevsky might be like subtly saying, "Orthodoxy is different. Orthodoxy is not trying to do that." But hmm. yeah. in any case. Good Lord, what do I care? As I told you, I just want to drag on until 30 and then smash the cup on the floor. That's an early metaphor that he used. Uh, he told Alyosha, basically, he wants to die when he's 30. And so yeah. smashing the cup was him saying, I'm going to commit suicide uh, when that wow. happens. Uh, which So that kind of shows like the fact that, which was a part of kind of the nihilistic assumption that life isn't worth living. And you might as well kill yourself. That actually happened, by the way, in the, in the 19th century when nihilism started to predominate in the universities, a lot of people are like, well, then why live? Mm. And a lot, it, suicide became so common amongst college students that really? professors would actually give lectures pleading with people not to commit suicide. So in the, in 19... In the 19th century, so 1800s, when nihilism... In Russia or... Every, everywhere. This was Europe. Really? Europe and, yeah, mostly Europe. Kind of like today. I mean, the suicide rate has gone way up today, but... Yeah. Has I, it I gone heard, up and down? I'm I've heard, and this is anecdotal, I couldn't give you a source, but I, I, I've heard that it would be like, noticeable in a classroom people just start disappearing because they're all oh committing gosh. suicide and 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 it certainly carries over into the existentialists the existentialists are are responding to nihilism they're basically trying to come up with an answer there if there's no god this is the nihilistic assumption and this is key to this book then there is no in no objective value hmm. um value can only come from creation Right. Like like mm -hmm. or purpose. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I have a microphone here. The purpose of the microphone is given to it by the person who made it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not made, then you're an accident, which means you have no purpose mm -hmm. and you value is going to be completely connected to your purpose. If you have no purpose, then there's no objective value. So so the nihilist basically comes to the conclusion that all value judgments are meaningless mm -hmm. um, or conventional. And if they're conventional, they're meaningless. So okay. so meaningless so, like, like the only kind of value you could give is as a collective whole. And that would right. be arbitrarily ascribed and only ascribed by whoever's in charge. And it'll change. But that means that there is no objective one. 
Right, right, right. And so um, the existentialist is trying to come up with an answer to that. Albert Camus, who's writing much later, he's writing in the, in the 19... I think he wrote this in like the 1920s or 30s. He wrote um, The Myth of Sisyphus. Might have been 40s. Myth of Sisyphus. And he begins with this line, suicide is the only serious philosophical question. Hmm. Now that we've demonstrated there's no God, he says trying to find a reason to live is the only thing philosophers should be doing with their time. So it's like this very much in the minds of, mm-hmm. of philosophers. Okay. So, uh, so Ivan Sitcher says, I'm going to smash the cup on the floor. And I love Alios responds, and the sticky little leaves. Wait, and, so that was like the goodness of creation, right? Like yes, because earlier Ivan does say, well, they're sometimes yeah. when I'm out there. And the sticky little leaves. Right. And he's describing the world around him. He loves it. Like springtime. Yeah, springtime. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. like, uh, he loves it. He goes, yeah. and the sticky little leaves and the precious graves and the blue sky and the woman you love, which is Katerina. How will you live? What will you love them with? Alyosha exclaimed ruefully. Is it possible with such hell in your heart and in your head? No, you're precisely going in order to join them. And if not, you'll kill yourself. You won't endure it. There's a force that will endure everything, said Ivan. What force? The Karamazov force. <laughs> Which, so here he's saying, basically, force of I am a Karamazov, and yeah. because of that, I hate pain, and I only want to feel good. So he goes, that force basically might... Like, might, I'm, a, I'm essentialist at heart. Yes. I'm essentialist at heart. Okay. And Which means that might actually stop me from killing myself, because I want to feel good. <laughs> to drown in depravity, to stifle your soul with corruption? Is that it? That too, perhaps. Only until my 30th year. Maybe I'll escape it then. How will you escape it? By means of what? With your thoughts. It's impossible. Again, in Karamazov fashion. You mean everything is permitted? Everything is permitted. Is that right? Ivan frowned and suddenly turned somewhat strangely pale. Ah, you caught that little remark yesterday, which offended Musov so much. And that brother Dmitri so naively popped up and rephrased. Yes, perhaps everything is permitted. Since the word has already been spoken, I do renounce it. Or I do not renounce it. And Matenka's version is not so bad. I thought, brother, that when I left here, I'd have you, at least, in all the world. But now I see that in your heart, too, there is no room for me, my dear hermit. The formula, everything is permitted, I will not renounce. And what then? Will you renounce me for that? Will you? Alyosha stood up, went over to him in silence, and gently kissed him on the lips. (laughs) Literary theft, Ivan cried. Now skip the next few lines. I love this. This It's so moving to me. Last paragraph. So, Alyosha, Ivan spoke in a firm voice. If indeed I hold out for the sticky little leaves, meaning Mm, if indeed I don't kill myself, I shall love them only remembering you. It's enough for me that you are here somewhere, Hmm. and I shall not stop wanting to live. Is that enough for you? I just love that. That's so beautiful. It's so beautiful, right? I mean... The atheist and the monk or whatever, like, he really loves his... He loves loves his brother. Everybody loves Alyosha. And what he's saying, and this is why this whole thing is Dostoevsky's answer, Um, in a sense. There's more... This whole book is an answer. Like, there are answers all throughout that none of them individually will deal with the whole argument. Mm -hmm. But this is part of his point. And I'll, I'll come to that here in just a second. But what's going on here is I want to I want to call back to a conversation that the Elder Zosima has with Madame Koklikov. Mm-hmm. Madame Koklikov is talking to Elder Zosima, and she says, I, I, I really want to know for sure that God exists. Right. And she says, will you prove it to me? Yeah. And the Elder Zosima says, it can't be proven. He says, you can never prove this. And by the way, like, 
I believe that wholeheartedly. Huh, really? Like, yeah. oh, wholeheartedly. You can't yeah. prove that God is real and that Christianity is true. And by the way, like, I, I know tons of people, like the church, if they were listening to this, they would freak out. I've had people freak out on me for that. Yeah. And I, I don't know what to tell them other than, like, I've had people be very angry with me on that. I, I just, I, I think you're being intellectually dishonest. If you think you can prove without any possible doubt. Without, is that, is that an important qualifier? That's without, what I mean. Okay. Prove means you, can be you can't to, possibly be okay. wrong. Okay. I think you could have good arguments. I do believe that. Okay. I think you could have good reasons. I I believe there are really good reasons for believing sure. Christianity. Yeah. I believe I believe that the reasons are better than believing anything else. Right, right. <laughs> but I don't believe you can prove it. At yeah. the end of the day, huh. when we go into the darkness as we face death, we don't know with 100% certainty. Mm. Everybody wants 100% certainty, and that's one thing that you don't ever get in this world. Wow. Any, and whatever 100% certainty you have is wishful thinking, I think. Um, and people don't like that, but that's yeah. what I think Zosim is saying to her, and is what I think Dostoevsky believes. Doesn't he say, how do you know God exists? Like, go love one another? Like, exactly. Is- so here's what he says right after that. He says, you can't prove it. And he says, but you can become convinced. Yes. And she says, how can I become convinced? I, I just listened to students argue about this, and they, they miss it. Because um, <laughs> what Zosima says is he says... By active love. He says, mm. go and love people actively. He says, and then you will be certain. Yes, You yes, will be yes, so yes. sure. And what I love about this, oh, all my man. students were like, students are like, oh, that's stupid. That's not an argument, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It's not an argument. What he's saying is, and, 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 and this is one of those pure existential things. Dostoevsky is considered an existentialist. Okay. It's an unfair descriptor because he predates the existentialist. He follows in the... Pascal, Kierkegaard, uh, basically, mm-hmm. um, tradition, essentially. Okay. He's a huge fan of Kierkegaard. And those guys all held to the view that you can't know for certain. Can you and, give a 20-second definition of existentialism? So, oh, goodness. It's really difficult, <laughs> especially because the way it's being applied is different. Yeah. The words used people, 10 different ways. Oh, it's actually... So the, the, the simplest definition is this. But I'm going to give you the secular version of existentialism because okay. religious existentialism is much different from secular existentialism. Okay. That's helpful. So to whatever degree Dostoevsky or Kierkegaard are existentialists, they don't fit the secular definition okay. because they believe in God. The existentialist essentially believes, they believe the nihilist assertion that we live in a world without values. Okay. That the cold, hard world of reality is meaningless. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth. However... There's a contradiction that lives in the human race, and mm-hmm. that is that in consciousness, we have the conviction that things matter, even though they don't. Yeah. And so, so essentially, what the existentialist does is the existentialist says, um, there, there isn't any like objective reality of truth, but what that means is we are free. If there's no objective reality, mm-hmm. then we're totally free, mm. because objective reality constrains us. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have that reality, then what we should do is instead of like the nihilist killing ourselves and being totally depressed, we should recognize that it frees us to do whatever we want. Mm-hmm. And so existentialism is about choice. So the, the only thing the existentialist, the only value they have is you need to make a choice. It doesn't matter what choice it is. Hmm. Embrace it. And that has value because you have made it that value. You've like you as an okay. individual impart value. Well, that sounds very mo- that sounds very like today. Like, For sure, I will 
choose who I want to be, my identity or whatever. And Existentialism is 100% the backdrop against okay. anything, any philosoph- like any assertion you hear today about like people asserting that they are creating their own sense right, of value right, or whatever right. is all like, it all grows out of existentialism. Okay. Now that ties into Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky in a very loose way, but the existentialists who the main ones would have, like the main guy is Sartre writing in the tw- uh, early 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. Jean-Paul Sartre, um, French philosopher, uh, he would have been an atheist existentialist. Albert Camus also is kind of the second guy they put in there. Although Camus didn't like the term existentialist, okay. he mostly was. Okay. Um, but they were heavily inspired. Oh, the forerunner to existentialism would be Nietzsche, right? Okay. From, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, but uh, the, the people look at Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky as two of the forerunners, even though they're religious. And, and in my mind, this is somewhat of a misconception because... They're not saying what they say, unlike the secular existentialists who believe that, um, like, they're making a metaphysical claim, meaning like a reality claim, right? Like, like there is no value in life, but we do have choice, and we're going to choose to embrace. Dostoevsky and, and Kierkegaard are making more of a of an epistemological claim, having to do with what okay. you know or what you can know. Because they don't seem, I don't know much about Kierkegaard, but Dostoevsky doesn't seem too into free will, or at no, least well, it's really yeah. complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's, so So essentially the way I would look at, kind of just define Kierkegaard or Dostoevsky in this is kind of what I was just saying. You can't know for certain, okay. but you have to make a choice. Right. So for oh, them, it's okay. like you yeah. have to make yeah. a choice. You can't just sit there and say, I'm going to remain. That's different than saying there is absolute free will. Which exactly. Is yeah. 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 So, so it's like you, you have to make a choice. And what, what Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky are saying essentially is we are making the choice to believe, to believe in Christ. And, and that, I, you know, they would, you know, Kierkegaard especially would say that there isn't, in, well, they both would say you can't prove it. Okay. I don't know what they would say in terms of, whether or not it's more rational, I think they probably would say it's more mm. rational to believe. But for them, everything is about making the choice of faith. That's okay, the big okay. thing. So, it's a so they are mm. predecessors to the existentialists, really. But they, you know, and, and existentialists really like the terms and the categories that they okay, have. Okay. But they don't really have the yeah. same the same view. Um, but oh shoot, what got us on that? Dost, uh, oh, act of love. Oh, right, okay. right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that, so, that is a choice. That, that's a really raw, simple choice. Yes. And so and here's the thing. What Zosima does, which is so interesting, is unlike philosophers mm-hmm. who say, well, here are the arguments. Mm-hmm. Zosima says, don't worry about the arguments. The arguments aren't what gets you the knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. What gets you the knowledge of God is to love people. Yeah. He says, if you go and you love people, and he means, by the way, the Christian concept of love, which right. is so, so funny, right? Culturally, we all, everybody thinks of love as a virtue, which drives me crazy, right? <laughs> like people are giving different definitions of love. I mean, I always think about that thing that you see everywhere, that slogan, love is love. That's such a funny statement because love is not love at all, <laughs> right? Like, like there are, like love is a very ambiguous term yeah. that can mean many yeah. different things. <laughs> and in one of those instances, love is clearly not a virtue. And mm. that is romantic love. I'm not against romantic love. Mm. I don't think it's bad in and of itself, but it can be bad oh, yeah. because romantic love can be, be very used to justify and it can be very self-serving and can be used to justify so many obviously bad things. Stalking is always ju- well, not always, <laughs> but stalking is often justified by romantic love. Mm. I had a youth kid once. I remember affairs. I mean, we can yeah, affairs. Yeah. I mean, abandoning your family. I mean, I still remember I was 
a youth pastor and this girl came up to me in, in youth group one day and she goes, uh, Tom, I go, yeah. She goes, you see that boy sitting in the back of the classroom? I said, yeah. Or in the back of the back of the youth room? I go, yeah. She goes, he can't be here. And I go, why is that? And she said, I have a restraining order against him. <laughs> he had been stalking her. This was in high school. So I go and I take him outside and I say, dude, you're going to have to, like, I take him outside and go, hey, can I talk to you? He goes, yeah, yeah. He's like very like, yeah, kind of tough. Like, you know, what, what do you want? What do you want to talk about? You beat the crap out of him. And, and, well, what I, what I said was, I said, you're going to have to leave. And he goes, why? And I told him. And he immediately falls to his knees and cries, but I can't leave her. I have to be around her. You don't understand. I love her. And I'm like, dude, so why anybody would look at that and say that's a virtue? I don't understand. But it's all, what it is, is it's the fallacy of equivocation. Hmm. There's Christian love, which is not that. Hmm. Christian love, the way that Jesus teaches it, right, that the, this this notion, right, Greek agape, Latin caritas, which is where we get the mm-hmm. word charity, it's it's sacrifice of your own interests and well-being for the sake of another, independent of what that person has to offer you. Yeah. You right, can, right. like, this is why Jesus illustrates it by saying, love your enemies. Right, right, right. Right? You, you're, you're supposed to have this thing for people that you don't even like. Yeah. That's the virtue. So, so Zosima, when he says active love, that's what he means. He says, go out and love the unlovable. Go out and sacrifice mm. your well-being for other people. And he goes, and then it will settle in your heart as assuredly as anything that mm. God is real and that he's loving you through all of it. And, and here's the thing. This is where it's existentialist. Because existentialist is an experiential philosophy. I can tell somebody that. Mm-hmm. And if they don't experience it, then it has no power. Hmm. What I can say is why that had such power for me is that's been my experience. When I choose myself hmm. and when I choose to kind of as, was it Augustine who described sin as turning inward or something mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. When I turn inward and go inside my house and don't, like don't, like I'm looking out for my own concerns and needs, I get pretty miserable. Yeah. But when I sit there and say, somebody needs me mm-hmm. and I'm going to go, even though I don't want to, and I'm going to make this sacrifice for them. I always feel the power of God. I always feel the reality of mm. God. And so somebody who doesn't feel that, they just say, well, that wasn't my experience. And right. Zosimo would have to say that, yeah, I don't know what else to say. So there is that. That is, okay, that makes sense. So there is an existential, an existentialism, a kind of it in yeah. Zosima's, yeah. a Christian yeah. existentialism. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and so Zosima says that. And by the way, that he goes on beautiful. His the, speeches are gorgeous. Oh, it's gorgeous. What I love is right after that, Madame Koklikoff says, oh, I've always wanted to love like that. She goes, I often dream. And it's so funny. She goes, I dream sometimes of abandoning my daughter. And <laughs> she actually says that. She so says, she does the yeah. love is love kind of. Well, she goes and she says, I want to go be a nun in a monastery and serve the poor and kiss the hands of lepers. But then she's also very self-aware. And she goes, the only problem is, is I fear that when I see that they don't love me back, that I'm going to hate them for it. She drives me crazy. <laughs> she, no, all throughout the book. Yeah. She's a fairly crazy character. When she opens sure. her mouth, I just yeah. go crazy. Yeah. Is there another there scene like where that. she just, it's like she just, I think Alyosha's there and she's just nonstop talking and no awareness of him even there, what he says, <laughs> like just every time she's, I don't know. It's there are a little, lot of characters like that that <laughs> rant a lot. She's a ranter, right? Oh, yeah. she, she's like keeps just. Very superficial yeah, and just, yeah. yeah. But Zosima credits her. Zosima's like, I'm so glad you recognize that in yourself. Uh-huh. And then he goes on, he says something for me that was super profound. He goes, he goes, active love is not love in dreams. And he says, he, he goes on to describe it. I should read this. Let me see if I can find it. It's, um, 
Is this when he's talking to Koklikov? Yes, it is early. We were just on that page. Uh, 57, 56. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, 57. Go back to 57. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Zosima after she says, I worry that the moment I try to love people, then I'm going to hate them when they don't return. <laughs> return. Uh, and he goes, I mean, that's how we kind of feel. It's yeah. like, all right. <laughs> this is a beautiful passage. He goes, I heard exactly the same thing a long time ago, to be sure, from a doctor. He was then an old man and unquestionably intelligent. He spoke just as frankly as you, humorously, but with sorrowful humor. I love mankind, he says, but I'm amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular, that is individually as separate persons. In my dreams, I often went so far as to think passionately of serving mankind. And it maybe would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary. Like I might've died for people in Mm -hmm. general. And yet I'm incapable of living in the same room with anyone, even for two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. Mm. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. (laughs) One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. I love that that's, because uh, because we as a society have that's like the not, twi- that's like Twitter justice warriors totally. whatever it's like are you li- are you, you all this rhetoric of like justice and love and all this stuff but like when it gets down to it are you really willing to Well, I always think about it. I feel bad. I don't want to throw my sister under the bus right now. But <laughs> my sister's little hippie-ish kind of, you know what I mean, kind of char- kind of character. Um uh whenever not every time, but when I talk to her, she often will mention friends of hers and she'll assess them for me. She'll go, oh, you haven't met so-and-so? She's great. And she'll almost invariably say, she's a um, an activist. She'll say, she's an activist. <laughs> and I remember one distinct conversation when I had with this. Our hometown burnt down a couple years ago. Um, and Par- Wait, not Paradise? No, not Paradise. It was uh, Phoenix, Oregon. Uh, oh, wow. t- Talent Phoenix, Oregon, which is where I grew up, uh, burnt down in... 2020 August wow. of 2020 wow. not the whole town um there were parts like my dad's house made it wow um but of course there are a lot of like most people who lost homes were kind of the hispanic communities mm-hmm. because they lived in trailers and the trailers mm-hmm. were really flammable caught up wow. and spread all through so you have a lot of displaced people in that area right so she describes how this she was she mentions a friend who has this who's an activist is a great person and i said oh activist i'm always like concrete everything for me needs to be concrete i go how's she an activist what's she doing she goes well she posts three times a day <laughs> yeah that's a, that's actually <laughs> I should say well 90 percent of the time that is what it is but she's like well she started to go fund me for people who've lost their homes i'm like oh, okay and like a couple a week later i said hey how's that go fund me going she goes oh uh my friend let it go and i go what do you mean she goes well she got in a fight with the other person she started with so she just gave it to her <laughs> and i'm like What's happening to the money? And here's the thing. I don't even know if anybody even had any sense of how to get that money to people. My, my point huh. is, is that we live in this world, like we, we have these grandiose virtues yeah. and we always want these grandiose virtues to, to like, we want to save everybody. Uh-huh. And, 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 and so we want to love because, because we, as a culture, we equivocate love. Sometimes it's about romance, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's about like mm-hmm. genuine charity, but it, we go back and forth on it. But, 
we we love in the abstract and not in the concrete mm-hmm. because yeah. we're terrible to the person that we're talking to. Yeah. And like Chesterton said something like this. Chesterton said, it's the easiest thing in the world to love the starving Ethiopian, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's our Ethiopian child. It's the hardest thing in the world to love your neighbor because yeah, it's like yeah. if there's an abstraction that we're not involved with, mm-hmm. we have compassion and we, we want, we think good thoughts towards yeah. that person. Yeah. But actually loving an individual mm-hmm. is so hard. I see a tension. I've seen this, this years ago. I started noticing this tension between like career missionaries and short term. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's really easy. And, and I, I, I go on short term ships. I've never been yeah. a career, career missionary. So I, I, you know, but I kind of resonate with some of the career missionaries or like short team. It's easy to go to Ethiopia, Kenya for yep. a month, yep. even six weeks, you know, try living here for six months and, yeah. and all the nostalgia starts to wear off, you know, and yeah. then you start to have to like actually concretely yep. do this work. You know, the but. real world is unglamorous. <laughs> yeah. It's unsexy. It's, it's like, it's just like to really love people is hard mm-hmm. and we're not naturally disposed to it. Yeah. And Zosim is saying, that's the kind of love yeah. we have to have. And here's what's so great about the end of that brother or at the end of grand inquisitor when Alyosha is kissing Ivan, he's loving him. Mm. And what Ivan's response is when he says, if I don't break the cup, if I decide to stick around for the sticky leaves, it's only going to be because you, Oh wow. Right. Because that's a really powerful moment. It is. Book. It's like, you are the only one who has loved me. By the way, hmm. Theodore says the same thing. Theodore, the one who raped the yeah. the um, the mentally challenged girl, he and I can't remember the exact quote, and I don't know where it's at. So I, I, he says to Alyosha, or, or no, no, it says about him. It's third person. The narrative narrator says that that Alyosha is the only one that a person like him had ever loved hmm. before. Like in, in other words, even Alyosha hmm. wins over. Theodore's yeah, heart. Like, yeah. like, and, and so what, what Zosima is essentially saying is it's not just that loving people actually is the, what wins them to Christ. Mm-hmm. It's also what wins us to Christ. Mm-hmm. Like as we're loving, mm-hmm. we're, that's actually what teaches us mm-hmm. um, to believe. Now there are all sorts of other answers that, that are given throughout the book. Tons of answers. It's like so many things are just these like little, but it all sets in here. And I, I mentioned this on one of those uh, Voxer things mm-hmm. I left with you. The final speech mm-hmm. that the defense attorney for Dimitri gives, because Dimitri's, of course, on trial for killing his father. In that speech, um, he says, look, if we look at all the evidence against Dimitri, everything, mm-hmm. then it seems to say Dimitri killed his father. Mm-hmm. And he says, but every little yeah. individual instance of evidence is defeasible, meaning like... We can actually show why it doesn't actually work. Mm-hmm. Every single one of these things can be turned on its head. Right. And that's what I believe. Now, this is this is my interpretation. I'm not saying nobody else out there has ever brought this interpretation, but I've never come across it. Mm. What Dostoevsky is saying in that moment is that Dimitri being on trial is essentially a metaphor for God being on trial. And the oh, evidence, really? if you take all of the evidence of, that Ivan has brought up, about pain mm-hmm. as a sum to- total. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's insurmountable. It looks like God is guilty. It looks like God is cruel and evil. But every single individual piece of evidence can be explained. But you have to look at the individual thing. And here's the thing when you actually look at the pain throughout the book, 
it's not that it's all justified, but it's not as clearly horrible as you would think. And there are many instances throughout the book of, of pain of children. For instance, the three brothers, they themselves suffered as children, right? right, right and right. so their suffering as children is not the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Zosima, or no, maybe it's Alyosha at the end. He says, he says that it's an amazing thing, but a good memory, even just a little good mm-hmm. memory as a child can drown out all the bad memories. I think he says that to the kids at the yeah, end. Yeah, to the kids. He? Like, like and, remember and, this moment? Yep. And-, and here's why I find this so important. Essentially what he's saying is, is when you come on the other side of something, mm-hmm. the pain that you experience in life actually does harmonize. It actually does start to make sense. Mm. It actually does disappear against the backdrop of, of, the, of the goodness that you've experienced in life. And again, that's, uh, experientially, that's true. To, like, seems true to me. Like, I remember I had an abusive stepfather. Mm. I, and I knew that it sucked being mm-hmm. in his world when I was mm-hmm. eight. He kicked me into a fire. He hit me over the head with a cast iron skillet. Like some really bad stuff. I didn't realize until I was sitting in a college class that it was abuse. Wow. I just thought he, I just thought I didn't like him. Never even occurred to me that it was bad. Wow. And here's the thing. Even though looking back now as a 45-year-old, like if I were to see him, I wouldn't hate him. It wouldn't even occur. To, I didn't even hate him then. Wow. Right? Like it's like it was bad and I like looking back at it, I would go, I would rather not have experienced it at the time. Sure. But as time moves, the, the, the nature of that suffering is different, hmm. right? And so, so when I think of that, it's like, um, that's, I think, what he's getting at. And there, here's something that really struck me. Have you ever read Night by Elie Wiesel? No. Okay. No. It's the same thing as Rebellion. Oh, okay. He wrote Night as, when he was 16, I think, at, right after being, li- not right after, but shortly after being liberated from, mm-hmm. um, from Auschwitz-Birkenau. And he go at the start. The book itself is an argument against God, hmm. right? There's a moment in the book where he's as a religious there. person, or is he an atheist? So, there? so well, so <laughs> here's the thing. He starts off as a religious person, Jewish kid. Yeah, he goes he goes to the camps. Um, he experiences all this death. There comes the key moment in the book, kind of if there's a narratival structure happens when he watches a kid get hanged. Yeah, and. He's sitting there, and it's a line I'll never forget. At all the people who are watching it, because they're forced to watch this kid mm. get hanged, they're crying out, where is God? Where is God? He's on where the gallows, God? right? Doesn't he say he's... And he says he's hanging there <sighs> That's, on I've the gallows. I've seen that line somewhere. Right? Yeah. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at that. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And when you read the book, I remember I read it. The second time I read it, I read it when I was in school. But second time I read it, I was so weird. I was depressed. And I bought the book for some random reason and read it that night. Oh, Couldn't put it down. And I was really wrestling with that question. Yeah. Like what, like why would God allow this to happen? And his conclusion was there's no God. That's his conclusion. And then after I finished the book, I went back and I read two things. There was an, in my version, there's an intro, there's an introduction. I I might get this guy's name wrong. I think his Mm. name was Francois Gillot. And he was a Catholic and he's the reason I might have the wrong name, but I think that's what it was. He was a Nobel laureate or something like that. He is the reason the book got published because when Wiesel wrote it when he, and tried to publish it when he was 18 or 19 or something, nobody was going to take a book from a kid. And they actually, most people didn't believe that stuff. They were like, that didn't happen. Mm. And so he read it and was so moved, he pushed, he used his literary influence to get it pushed through. His name might have been Mariak. These are two names. It's been a while since I've read yeah. it, so I, I could be wrong. Gilo or Mariak. I'm, mm. I'm, 
I'm blending two names, but he, in his intro, he ends it by saying, and like talking about his conversation with him, he goes, and I, how did I respond to this, to this Jewish boy who just shared this story with me? He said, how could I respond? He said, could I tell him that he reminded me of another young Jew who mm. also left the world too early, mm. who also hanged there before the world? And how could I tell him that that Jew hanging there on that tree reconciled the world and was the most important thing that ever happened? He goes, I couldn't tell him any of those things. He says, all I could do is weep and hold him. Oh, wow. And so I read that, and that like uh. was this really powerful thing, but then what got me? And this just made me, it just brought me to my knees in tears. I then read the afterword, which was a speech given by Elie Wiesel when he was 70-something, when he won the Nobel Prize. And in it, I don't remember any of the speech except for the last line, or the last, like, the, uh, the peroration, the very end of it. Mm. He goes, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wow. And all I can think of is what Zosima and Alyosha are saying and what Lewis says, right? When Lewis says, look, when you are, like, redeemed when the time when you are glorified when you stand before god the the glory of heaven is going to work backwards through your life and essentially sanctify everything so that even the worst things you ever experience are different right and then of course he contrasts that with what he takes to be the damned Mm -hmm. and he says and everything that they experienced will have worked backward to be Part of that damnation. Glorification works backwards through your whole life. Damnation works backwards through your whole life. That's what Lewis says. I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about Wiesel. As an 18-year-old boy, he could not hold any more to God because he couldn't see how God could have done that. But by the time he was 70-something, he's like, something had changed. And his vision of that whole event was different. The whole thing had been transformed in his mind. And it went from mm-hmm. something that God could not have allowed to something God not only could have, but used. And that's the And that's not the end. You have to have that life experience to have suffering and joy kind of woven together through the story. Or not, not joy, but like... I don't know if you have to. Yeah. But what Zosim or Alyosha are saying is, but it, it works that way. Like it whether just, or not it, it has just to, does. it just does. Hmm. Well, yeah, we got to start to wrap it up here. It's almost <laughs> the longest yeah, right. podcast in the history. Is but, it really? Well, one yeah. last question then from me to you really quickly before mm-hmm. we wrap it up. Because you said, because one of his key arguments is that nihilistic argument. that, mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. one of the things that, that Dostoevsky is very centered on, he does believe that, and this is the weird thing, if there is no God and no immortality, then everything is permissible. There is no right. moral. Oh, yeah, yeah, there yeah, is yeah. no moral uh, reality. Mm-hmm. No objective morality, which means basically all morality is conventional and can be whatever people want it to be. And in fact, just is what people want it to be. Mm-hmm. And in fact, just is the opinion of the stronger. Mm-hmm. If there is no objective morality, all morality must just be whatever the opinion of the stronger right, is. Right. Right. And so the, Ivan yeah. says he embraces that, but then he doesn't. Because at the end of the book, he can't handle the guilt. And let's face it, even his argument, and this is kind of to C.S. Lewis's argument against the problem of evil, even his argument is predicated on the idea that torturing children is horribly Mm -hmm, evil. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And essentially what he's getting at is how can it be if everything is permissible? And he's just saying, Ivan can't live that. Smerdyakov tries to. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And where does it lead to Smerdjikov? Suicide. Right, right. But, but Ivan can't even do it, and it drives him insane trying to. Right. And at the end, he confesses it all because... Because as Alyosha said, and this will be the last bit I'll read, and then you yeah. can, because you said you had some yeah. thoughts with it. But this is this is in that um, uh, passage towards the end. Uh, it's before uh, Ivan. Um, shoot, I got to find it. It's before Ivan confesses, and it's during his run-in with the devil. So he has a oh. a vision of the devil talking to him. Yeah, that's so. Trippy. This is starting on six thirty-four. Is the chapter um and of course it's up in the air whether it's really the devil or whether yeah. it's a hallucination i love the ambiguity there and i love that he doesn't he lets it linger that yeah is it his flesh manifest is it the devilness of ivan coming out or is it the devil or somewhere in between and he's um, like probably yeah. like yes <laughs> by the way the devil gives an argument that i think is a very strong one in response to ivan in the midst of that which means ivan thinks it comes from his own head and yeah. it's the, the devil tells a parable about a guy who's an atheist, and he dies. Mm. And he comes out on the other side, and he's like, was wrong. God's there. And he's like, <laughs> and the, the atheist goes, no, I refuse to believe, even though I see it. And God says, okay, well, your punishment is you're going to have to walk a oh, yeah, quadrillion yeah. miles to get to heaven. So it's like a purgatorial kind yeah, of, yeah. almost like a purgatorial hell, so to speak. <clears throat> and um, the guy says, I refuse. And he lays down, refusing to walk for a thousand years. <laughs> And then Ivan says to the devil, he goes, I suppose he just laid there forever. And the devil goes, no, he got bored. And after a thousand years, he got up and started walking because of course he's going to get bored. He walks and he walks the quadrillion miles. And Ivan's like, how? There's not enough time for that. He goes, time's different in this world. Hmm. And then he says something really, the key thing, he goes, Ivan says, and what happened? And the devil says, when he walked through the gates, he said, hallelujah. And he says, everything would have been worth it for even two seconds of this. And two seconds of paradise. Two seconds of paradise is worth everything. And, and this is from the devil. This is from the devil. Of course, <laughs> the, that's because the devil is Ivan's antagonist. Okay. So he's arguing okay. against what Ivan has been believing. Oh, okay. So the devil is the adversary, right? So the devil isn't really about teaching. In this chapter, the devil isn't evil. He's the adversary oh, to I Ivan. Didn't, I didn't pick that up. Yeah, okay. he's. At, he, in other words, he's the one who's providing. He's basically, if you will, in Ivan's you know, arguments, Ivan has taken the stand that it's not worth it. Hmm. Nothing is worth the pain. And the devil goes, this guy, when he got through, he said, it's all worth it for even two seconds. And I think this is the point. You can't know whether it's worth it until you've seen it. Like people can argue all they want, like can, like Voltaire did in Candide, hmm. that it's not worth it. But until you've arrived, you can't know whether it's worth it. You can't know until you've actually seen the end of the story. And what we actually have evidence to believe mm. it's worth it. And it's rooted in this thing mm-hmm. that we just described. That as we get older, the mm-hmm. tragedy in our past changes. Mm. It looks differently. And if it looks differently, even in this world, what about if we actually live for eternity? Mm. Right? It's actually an argument I had with a friend of mine who, I don't know if he became an atheist or not. He was really wrestling with it. But I remember as we were discussing, he kept saying, but the amount of pain, it's the amount of pain, it's too much. But here's the thing. If we are infinite beings, Mm -hmm. that is infinite in the forward, like we live forever, Mm -hmm. then all pain that we experience in this world is finite. And all all pain Mm -hmm. we experience in this world is finite. Then all pain is infinitely small, right? Right, It has to be. 
It just has to be. I mean, after a billion years of living or whatever, you'll look back on the yeah. few decades where you had. Yeah. Exactly. So that, anyway. that all sounds almost Bardian, like in a different way, like where you can't make sense of the world until you have had this radical encounter with Jesus. Like yeah. you can't, and you can't be argued toward that encounter. It's like it's not going to make sense until you've had that encounter. And that creates, I mean, I'm not a Bardian scholar at all, but <laughs> that becomes like the epistemological ends through yeah. you can, that's the only time you can understand everything. Yeah. I apologize to my Bardian scholars if I'm butchering Bart, but yeah. the 100 well, pages I've read. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> I'm, I'm the biggest fan of Bart who's never read a little Bart. He's like... <laughs> That was me until I got convicted. <laughs> so I read 120 pages of volume 4.1, which everybody says is great. Um, okay. Yeah. The passage okay. I want to read really yeah. quick is the last thing I'll, I'll say. Well, until, but you had a yeah, comment yeah. to make on. So page 655, I said it was the devil. It's actually the next chapter. And this is when Ivan is wrestling with whether or not he's got to confess. Because here's the thing. This, here's the spoiler. The person who killed dad was Smerdjikov. And he did it purely because... Ivan told him there's no morality. He only did it. He's the extension of... He only did it to prove that Ivan was right. And he believes he did it. And here's the thing. We don't have time to look at this now, but I'd love to point this out later. If you look back at the chapter when when Ivan and and Mm -hmm. Smerdjikov talk, Mm -hmm. Ivan tells him to kill dad. It's really clear. He does. I need to go back and read that. It's actually super clear. And... The only way I can explain it is, is that... I thought he hinted at it. He actually told so, him to. Well, no, he doesn't say the words. Yeah. But what happened is, is in the in the chapter leading up, Smerdjikov says, here's here's the plan. Um, I'm going to fake a falling fit. I'm going to fake a mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, seizure. I will allow Dimitri to come in. Dimitri will kill the old man. But if he doesn't kill the old man, I'll go kill him. Mm. And, and, and you can signal to me this is what you want. By going to Smerj, uh, uh, to uh, not Smerjikov, to uh, Chern, Chernish, uh, Chermashnia. Right. And Ivan goes, what? That's stupid. He, he keeps saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Shut up. You're an idiot. He just keeps saying those things. But when he leaves the next morning, he had actually told, at the end of the chapter, he tells he tells Smerjikov, he goes, I'm not going to Chermashnia. I'm going to Moscow. And he goes, that's probably for the best. The next morning, he has an interaction with his dad, and he's really like, you can just tell he's disgusted with his dad. Mm-hmm. He gets in the carriage. Smerdjikov runs up to say goodbye, and he turns to Smerdjikov, and he says, actually, I'm going to Chermoshnia. I did not pick that up. And then Cher- Smerdjikov says, it's always, oh, shoot, how does he word it? It's always enlightening talking to an intelligent man. Oh, right. And that right? phrase comes up later and, on. Exactly. Oh, and so Smerdjikov man. takes that. As his cue to kill, to kill Fyodor. And here's the thing. Later, Ivan believes that he actually was guilty. That's why he's yeah. going crazy the whole way leading up because yeah. he told himself, no, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. But if you read the end of the chapter, he changes his mind, doesn't go to Chermoshny, goes to Moscow. Yeah. And when he arrives, he actually says, I'm a scoundrel. That's his final thing. He realizes he actually ordered dad's killing. Wow. And so when Ivan confesses that, or Ivan's wrestling with confessing that, Alyosha goes and is talking to him. And at the top of page 655, uh, Ivan falls asleep. And at, or, No, yeah, Ivan's passed out. Alyosha's getting ready to sleep. He says, as he was falling asleep, he prayed for Mitya and Ivan. He was beginning to understand Ivan's illness, the torments of a proud decision and a deep conscience. Hmm. Like, Al, like Ivan has a deep conscience. He says all things are permissible, but he can't hmm. live it. Hmm. God in whom he did not believe, and his truth were overcoming his heart, which he still did not want to submit to. Yes, it passed through Alyosha's head, which was already lying on the pillow. 
Yes, with Smerdyakov dead, no one will believe Ivan's testimony, but he will go and testify. Alyosha smiled gently. God will win, he thought. Hmm. He will either, meaning Ivan, will either rise into the light of truth or perish in hatred, taking revenge on himself and everyone for having served something he does not believe in. Alyosha added bitterly and again prayed for Ivan. Wow. That's right there for me. That's Ivan. He doesn't believe in what he's Hmm. been saying. Hmm. He actually believes in God. He actually believes in in morality and doing what's right. And he loves, he's full of active mm-hmm. love. That's why calling him, he's an atheist. I don't it's, know, I just, it's, a, it's not it's, satisfying. It's not, like, I it's get not it, accurate, but, yeah. and really in a sense. That's why like, I would say he wants to be. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> he's, exactly. he's trying hard. It makes yeah. the most sense to him. But deep down, he still has this moral conscience that just he can't run away from. You yeah. Know? And all his Christian values, he's love for kids, and he helps that peasant that, mm-hmm. you know, he, what he, he, didn't he hit him, and then the guy's going to freeze to death, and on the way back, he's like, yep, all right. Yep, he, like, he goes know. and saves him, which is a very, yeah. like, uh, uh, oh, uh, the, uh, oh, shoot, the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan. Right? Oh, yeah. He's, he's oh, yeah. on the lighted side of the road, takes him to the inn, oh, pays right. for him to be taken yeah. care of, right? He's literally doing living the out, He's doing the he's act of love. Active love. He's, Ivan's living out active love. You can't... Dostoevsky believes it's impossible to live this life. He th- and by the way, real world people tried this. Uh, if you've ever heard of, um, oh shoot, Loeb and, oh, I can't remember the other guy's name. There were two Americans who having read Nietzsche and the Nihilists. This was uh, early, early 1900s? Late, I think early 1900s, maybe late 1800s. Leopold and Loeb. They, um, two college students who decided mm-hmm. that there was no morality mm-hmm. because there's no God. And so they decided they wanted to kill a kid just to prove they could, that their conscience was, their con- they were above their consciences. So they kidnapped a boy and killed him for no reason and believe they committed the perfect crime because they have no emotion. So they're going to commit the perfect crime and get away with it. And um, they couldn't because their consciences were absolutely demolished and they gave themselves away because one of them went to the police station every day asking for updates on the case. He couldn't handle mm-hmm. it. He couldn't, mm-hmm. whether it's conscience or fear or whatever, they couldn't live mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. And they end up mm-hmm. getting caught. It's a famous case in American history, which yeah. whenever I hear, whenever I think about Dostoevsky, I think about that because Dostoevsky wrote about this all the time. Crime and Punishment, which I highly recommend. Huh. Raskolnikov, the main character, is Smerdyakov. The oh, only really? thing is he's the protagonist. <laughs> and he starts off sitting here saying, I've got to kill somebody to prove that I'm one of the great ones. Oh, wow. To prove that I can rise above morality. And he does. And that's a spoiler yeah. alert. But it's the first 15 pages he kills somebody. Okay. Yeah. For no reason other than to kill. Is it? I heard it's easier than this to read Crime and Punishment. Uh, I think Are it's they? a little harder because okay. so much of it's in his head. Imagine oh, okay. being in Smerdyakov's head. I, I don't want to yeah. necessarily say he's exactly Smerdyakov. He's like a mix between Smerdyakov and Ivan. But he's certainly closer to Smerdyakov because Ivan would never mm-hmm. kill an old lady with an axe, which is right. what he does. Okay. And um, he can't live with it. And so you're living in his head from that point forward. By the way, this isn't really a spoil, but the, the other main character in the book is a prostitute mm. who he falls in love with. Oh, wow. And one of the most beautiful things I've ever read is him visiting her room and reading her, and it's like the whole chapter, huh. the story of Lazarus's resurrection. It is one of the most beautiful things. Really, it's unbelievable. Wow. Just, so it's like, but this, but that book is like, it's wrestling with this same thing. Like huh. Dostoevsky's convinced if you're going to be an atheist, that's where that's the road you have to go down. Huh. You have to go down that road. 
That's kind of, that sounds similar to Alyosha with Grushenko and uh, Ritika. Ritikin. Or Rikitin. Rikitin. He was trying to get Alyosha to sleep with her and yeah. said, he gives her an onion or whatever you want to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, gosh. I love that scene. Um, yeah. I've really got, my family's probably waiting for me. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. But, sorry. Um, no. So the, uh, you're asking about the, the more out. So the, I don't know. Just, and, and I, this is me, armchair philosopher, mm. thinking out loud, but the whole like, if there is no God, there is no morality. Because there's morality, therefore there's God. I, I just, I don't know. I, maybe that's true. It just, it hasn't been as compelling to me because of just because of the idea of like communal morality being kind of a, a very real thing embedded in one's conscious. And the only parallel I can give is like languages. Like I, you know, I learned language. I wasn't born speaking English. It's not part of my conscious, but because of my communal environment, I English is so embedded in me that I can't not understand English, no matter how hard I, it's so part of me. But it's a purely it's purely a social construct. It just happened through my communal environment. And could morality be formed through a similar cultural phenomenon to where you don't need an actual higher authority beyond communities establishing morality that's just not just arbitrary from individual to individual. It's just so embedded in the communal environment. Or even like if you go to like, I don't know, places in the jungle in Brazil or whatever. I don't know if you read like, what's that? Um Oh, I don't know. Like, where, you know, where the morality in different communities is so yeah. far. Like, yeah. like revenge killing is just like, no, nobody totally. even thinks about it. Or revenge rape or whatever. Like, you know, some places stealing one's wife is horrible. Another one, it might be justified on some grounds or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. But, well, um, so I, I, I just understand, like, if, if I was an atheist, I feel like I wouldn't be that impressed with that argument. But am I missing maybe? So here's why I think the argument is very compelling and why Dostoevsky okay. was, was with it. The nihilist would agree with everything you said. No, okay. yeah, there are communal moralities for sure. Yeah, you can, so it, it's not that the argument says there's no kind possible kind of morality. Mm-hmm. What it's saying is essentially is this: if there's no God, then all morality is convention, and the convention oh, okay. is established by the stronger. And here's the thing: oh. there, there are two things because it it's and that seems that, okay. That seems to me that seems obviously so. True. It kind of grants everything I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it grants all of that. Um, and yet, so, so, so in one hand you can embrace it, which is, I think what Nietzsche, the nihilists all do. They're like, no, we embrace that. We just are saying the actual conventions themselves are just conventions, which means you don't have to do them. Hmm. In fact, the only thing that should motivate you to do them, presumably would be the fear of being Mm -hmm. put to death for not, for violating them or being Mm -hmm. ostracized for violating them. And so, so that's where the, all the fear is and who is going to put you to death, Mm -hmm. um, or, ostracize you it's the strong because mm-hmm. morality is determined by the strong mm. and and here's the funny thing though is like that seems like the opposite of our sense of morality but mm. that's the reality and also mm. it means that your morality could literally be the exact opposite like mm-hmm. if the strong say let's round up people and just kill them indiscriminately then that's going to be the morality mm. and this of course gets into the big critique of like um of of basically you know uh cultural relativism mm-hmm. which is that we all sense that there are cultures that are bad, like objectively bad. Now mm-hmm. that could just be like a misconception. That could be like a something that we've just desire in our minds. Mm-hmm. As long as we realize that, like we just need to try to speak properly about it. So I, I think about, uh, I listened to an episode of uh, the podcast stuff. You should know. I don't know if you've ever uh, heard I that. I have. Yeah. yeah and, and the two guys was so fascinating. They were about to do a podcast on, 
um, the Inca. And they were going to talk about human sacrifice hmm. because, of course, the Inca yeah. practiced human sacrifice. And one of the hosts gave kind of a disclaimer at the start saying, listen, we're cultural relativists, which means we're not going to judge these people for, for committing child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then his partner goes, uh, actually, I'm not a cultural relativist anymore. And the guy said, what? And he goes, I, yeah. And he goes, why? And which I can't believe they didn't talk about this before the show, right? But he goes, well, <laughs> he says, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Alan Turing on the podcast. You know, the, the guy who uh, created the Enigma machine and, okay. and uh, who invented the computer, right? Hmm. Have you heard of Alan Turing? I barely, I mean. So Alan Turing, uh, they made a movie about it, The Imitation Game, I think. He cracked the Nazi code hmm. with the Enigma machine. or the, he, no, he didn't invent the Enigma machine, sorry. He cracked the code mm-hmm. of the Enigma machine, which is what the Nazis mm-hmm. used, which enabled the Allies to read the code during World War II and anticipate what the, what the Nazis were going to do. He also is like one of the key contributors to the invention of the first like computers, right? Mm-hmm. He ends up, um, it turns out he's gay, Mm-hmm. And he ends up being arrested a few times for soliciting male prostitutes, oh, wow. and he gets punished by being chemically castrated, hmm. and then he kills himself, probably very much linked to that chemical castration. Oh. So people really look at his story as like a great injustice, yeah. like perpetrated by the British. This guy was key in winning World War Two, hmm. and we repay him by by doing this oh. thing. Well, they talked about him a couple of weeks before, and somebody wrote in and said. Look, we agree with you about your outrage at that this happened to Alan Turing, but you can't judge the British because it was their culture. In their culture, it was bad to be gay. And so you can't judge them because that was what their culture determined was the right punishment right, for being yeah, homosexual. Yeah, yeah. To which he goes, nope, it's always wrong to, to chemically castrate somebody. He's wait, in the podcast? Yes, that's what he says. So he comes around. He comes all around. He says, it's always wrong. Yeah. And the reason he wants to say that is because Cultures do judge other cultures, and we have this sentiment that we have to. Like, like what the Nazis did is not bad. Mm-hmm. We may not like it, and so we right. can justify destroying Nazi culture because we don't like it, but we say it's actually bad. Right. And the nihilist says you can't say it's bad unless there is an arbiter above culture. And there is no arbiter above culture if in a naturalistic society. So you can't say according... I mean, because you could, you just... Nobody does it practically. I'd say, well, well, if the community standards are established, then to vi- then to be part of that community and to violate those community standards is the ultimate morality is the community standards. Yes. And so in that case, what you could say is you could say, um, we don't like that standard that the, not- that the Nazis yeah. had. But you can't so say it's wrong. We can't say it's We can, but it's only wrong based on our convention. Right, 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 right. And the only reason, by the way, it's not upheld is because we beat them. If they beat us, that would now be the standard. Yeah. And then yeah. that would be what's right. So at and the very least, it's a very inconsistent and chaotic kind yeah. of way of even yeah. well, understanding and, morality. But that's what's required mm-hmm. if morality is conventional. Right. And so the only way to have a truly objective morality is for something above right. culture and humanity. Okay. So now you can embrace that. People do. They just often don't know what they're saying. That? And that's what Dostoevsky's saying. And it's inconsistent. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or even within, I mean... Uh, when we talk about culture, we could talk about various cultures within a larger culture. So, like, you could talk, like, American culture and, you know, for, for a I – mean, what if a – for instance, you have a more a more progressive person critiquing a more oh, yeah. conservative fundamentals person. And what if you say, well, that's their culture? That's well, a, we they, have a hard time defining culture. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, well, no, but that's part of the fundamentalist way of thinking that women are subordinate to men or whatever. And you can just see somebody just their mind go crazy. You know, it's like President Obama (laughs) twice ran on a platform of being against gay marriage, both in 08 (laughs) and in 2012. He believed that he, by all assertions, said shouldn't exist. Men shouldn't marry men. He says, I define marriage as between a President Obama. Oh, yeah. I remember that. People forget forget this. In 08, California held a public, a popular referendum on whether or not to legalize gay marriage in 2008. It failed 60 to 40. California. Yeah. 60 to 40. So all this to say, I only bring this up because 08 American culture (laughs) is not... 2021 American culture. So it's a culture of time bound of what even constitutes a culture, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, so it's a weird thing. Hey, thanks for coming into my basement and recording the longest theology in the route. So I've almost done the thousand episodes. So I think, I I don't know, this might be 940 or whatever it is. So you you hold the record for the longest podcast episode, (laughs) Tom Velasco. Thanks for giving us a tour of this book. I mean, I, I slugged my way through it. It only took me like five weeks to get through it. I'm a slow reader. Impressive. Um, Again, parts were... I mean, just fascinating. Other parts were a little hard. Um, but, yeah, thanks for turning me on to it. Thanks, too, for Brian Zahn for solidifying the – that he's read it four times, he said. He's the second most I've heard of somebody reading it. Um, I, I kind of want to read it again, man, but it was a chore. I mean, it's a big <laughs> <laughs> I, I would recommend you try um, – before you read it again, read Crime and Punishment, read The Idiot. Um, also, delve into Tolstoy. I love Tolstoy. Very different. Yeah. Much easier to read. Okay. Tolstoy yeah. is like a breath of fresh air. So you're into these Russian writers. I love them. They're, they're, they're the best. They're the best. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, man. That was yeah. awesome.